1: What goes into planning a draft at an expert's league? I'll ask Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and Sirius XM, and Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Next on Baseball HQ Radio,
2: learn to play the winner's way,
0: cause Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist
1: Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March 23rd. It's show number 15 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host. We have another great Two Tout Tuesday edition for you with two great guests. First, we'll have a feature interview with Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and SiriusXM discussing his Tout draft, including top prices for a starter and a reliever, about caution versus aggressiveness, and why Jeff always gets Nelson Cruz. He'll also have his boons and banes and more. And then we'll have our second feature interview with Mike Gianella for Baseball Prospectus and Flags Fly Forever, discussing his Tout AL and Labor NL drafts, including how he ended up with two very different spending strategies. He'll have his boons and banes more as well. It's another big Two Tout Tuesday edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Tout Wars drafts are over. We're going to talk some baseball. Yes, the Tout Wars draft season wrapped up on Sunday with the National League-only salary draft in the morning and the mixed head-to-head draft in the early evening. Those were drafts number 6 and 7 of 2021, a season that included 12- and 15-team mixed drafts, a 12-team 50-round draft and hold, and four salary drafts. Those 12-team American League and National League-only, a 15-mixed, and that 12-team head-to-head points league. Tout plays an important role in the fantasy baseball ecosystem, It's where some really fine players and analysts try out new approaches and try to gain new insights that they can then share with the fantasy playing public. I've been in tout a number of years, first in the 15 mixed salary draft and for the last few years in AL only salary. I have a few podium finishes to my credit, but no gold medals, not yet anyway. I don't think it's going to happen this year either. I hope Tout serves some useful purpose for you, and we'll be talking all about that on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. In the first inning of this Two Tout Tuesday edition, our feature expert interview with Jeff Erickson from RotoWire wire and SiriusXM. Jeff, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be back. It's been, I think it's been a while, a few years, right? Uh, I don't remember, but it's probably at least a year because uh, I try to get you on at least once a year. How many leagues have you drafted this year so far, Jeff?
2: I believe it's it's eleven. I've got. No, I think it's nine actually. Because I've got. I'm looking at my calendar and I see six more drafts left in my uh, calendar. Although one of them is the XFL reserve. So nine and a half. How about that?
1: Nine and a half sounds like uh, still a, a lot by by comparison to me, but uh, you... Right, you, plus you ha- four
2: score sheet leagues in a Stratomatic league. I don't even count those, so it, it's really like 20 is what I'm at.
1: Holy cats. Uh, I usually ask guests if they've noticed themes or trends in the market in their drafts, but I've been doing that for a while, so let me ask you something a little different given the number of drafts you've been in. What themes or trends have you noticed, if any, in your own drafting?
2: Uh, I feel stronger... About the closer pool, well, at least until today, I felt stronger about my maybe I felt stronger about what I liked in the closer pool. Uh, and then some things have changed. For instance, San Diego, all of a sudden Emilio Pagan might be the lead guy in, in San Diego. So that that's kind of thrown me because I had a couple leagues with uh, uh where I went with uh, Deek and not Deakman. I'm sorry, uh,
1: Drew Pomerantz
2: Pomerantz plus Melanson and, and TGFBI combined. I was like, oh. You know, I'm not sure which one's going to be it, but I've, I've got it cornered. Ha ha. No, no, you don't. Um, the, you know, I, Richard Rodriguez is all of a sudden having a little bit more doubt sewn in, although I think we just assumed facts that weren't in evidence. And I was guilty of that a little bit. You know, and then, you, you know, news came out on Texas today that uh, LeClerc's elbow and Kirby Yates today with the pronator strain. Uh, I don't have any Yates or LeClerc. In fact, I purposely nominated LeClerc. I just wanted to make sure that no one got him for single digits in our league, but. Uh, i i had no interest in getting him
1: i have a lot of those guys in tGfbi and in the uh, best ball the the raz slam draft uh, i drafted uh, nothing but closers and setup guys in that draft because uh, i think the points difference between them and starters it's a long story but i don't i don't draft starters in that best ball league because i i just think that i'm better off with hitters
2: it's an interesting approach i can see it working uh because you get three saves in a week you're, you're already crushing it if you have a slew of them you don't have to time the market
1: that's exactly it. And and if you get a bunch of hitters, I mean, a home run's worth 14 points. That's two wins in a week for a pitcher and even allowing for some uh, strikeouts. Plus the pitchers have more negative categories. They lose points for every hit, for every walk, for every run. And basically the only thing a hitter loses points for is an at-bat. And theoretically, anyways, mo- uh, a goodly number of the time he'll do something positive with the at-bat. So, um yeah, that's the, that's the way I went with that. But of course, drafting a lot of closers means I got a fair number of shares of Drew Pomerantz. I got Kirby Yates. I got all these guys that now you're telling me are all falling by the wayside one by one. And I'm going to be sitting there with, uh, with nothing left. Although I did draft a lot of the guys behind the guys just to protect myself. And I'm hoping that I got a few of those as well. Uh, what's, uh, to what extent do you think, Jeff, the experience of previous drafts this season affected your uh, Tau Wars draft and the drafts yet to come?
2: Well, I, I feel like every draft I do is a battle test of my rankings, my projections, of assertions. You know, you know, it's one thing to, to advocate for that, and then when you're put to the test, especially in a or I guess we're calling it salary cap. Draft now, as opposed to auction. You know, you, you're really put to the test every single player. You really have to, read you know, you know, question your assumptions. You have to question who you like. I mean, because turns out other people like who you like too, and you're not going to always get what you want. It's not going to fall the way you want sometimes. And so, plus you're, you know, on a snake draft, you know, you got okay, you're 12 picks away. You're just marking guys off. You know, you're planning ahead. You you want to have an idea who's going to be around, but you're, you're kind of beholden to what everybody else is doing. Whereas in the auction, it's just every player. Okay, I got to make a decision. Do I like this guy? Do I want this guy? Does he fit? Um, how, how, what do I think of him? And because you never know when that bargain is going to come by, they they don't know. Especially in, in the wars where we've got you know eleven eleven other really smart owners, uh, and they're not going to be yeah you know, you know giving me bargains left and right. They're not going to give me what I want. I'm going to have to think it through, and so I, I really have to kind of be able to. Ju- I think the whole point is you have to be able to react quickly when you see something like, Oh, this is st- slowing down. Okay. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, I wasn't planning on getting you, but I think $9 is a really good price. Let's go, let's get them. Uh, and you have to do that decision all the time. And so I think one of the things is you, you know, I, I, every draft I've kind of like thought a little bit more. I've seen a little bit more of what I like and who that who am I late? If I'm going to do uh, if I'm going to go big early in the player pool, who, do, who are my targets late? Plan those way in advance, and I think that helps.
1: What one thing do you feel you've done consistently well this draft season or, or over the past few draft season? in fact? What are you good at?
2: I think I've done a better job of category awareness, uh, knowing where I sit in, a, in every particular category. There are times when you kind of lose the forest for the trees, uh, and this matters more in overall contest than it does in a standalone league. I think in a standalone league, you can there are strategies that work where you can bypass a category, but At least you have to be cognizant of it. You have to be aware of it. Uh, If you know that you're going to be light on speed, okay, well, I'm okay with that. I'm going to embrace that. That's fine. Uh, I think that's one thing that I get better at as the the course of draft season goes on, and I know where my late guys in those particular categories are.
1: In the auction, do you use a, a software package of any kind to track the spending and all of those kinds of things, or are you still a pencil and paper guy?
2: Oh no, I am def- I use the rotowire software. Uh, I love it. I think we have refined it a lot over the years. I think it's fantastic. I, I get the argument for pencil and paper. I, I really do. Uh, I think some people organize their thoughts better when they're, when they're writing things down, uh, it's, you know, proven in colleges, you know, people who write down their notes as opposed to just, you know, typing them on, you know, in a device, whether it's an iPad or a computer actually probably learn better by writing. It's, it's interesting. So I get that. Uh, I just, I know my, but I also know the software like the back of my hand too. So I know how to manipulate things the way I want. I know how to get it, get my setup proper. When we're doing these online drafts, I have the draft room on one, I have two, I have a big monitor with the draft room and I have a little laptop with the draft software. So I'm not like looking, I can look at both at the same time. I've I've just got my setup. I feel
0: comfortable with it.
1: How about you? I'm a draft software guy as well, but I'm actually thinking about whether I'm going to keep doing it because I am kind of more a tactile guy. When I was in university and I was a pretty good student, I took reams of notes, writing stuff down. And then I found it really did help at exam time or even when you're writing your, uh, you know, papers and stuff that you remember stuff for some reason when you're writing something else down that has, you know, a relation to it, it pops back into your head. So, I think I'm I might try it partly because i find that the in the in uh, snake drafts i can manage it fine especially in slow drafts because you have all this all the time in the world but in the uh, auction setting because of the pace and that you mentioned about the decisions you have to make the awareness you have to have i find i'm just losing too much time to the data entry part of the process and because there's a data entry at the at the draft room where you're trying to choose your next nominees and that kind of stuff, but there's also data entry when it comes to logging the the transactions that have been made into your draft software. And I find I'm I think it's something that I'm going to try next draft season. I'll try it early in some mocks if I can to see if I'm capable of of keeping up that way. The data entry is where I get to is where I stumble, especially sure. in these situations.
2: Well, and I think you probably stumble on that more in online online drafts, especially like the one we had on Fantrax, where boom, someone can get that nomination out there quickly. And you're 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 meanwhile like putting a guy on a roster and like hey, okay, oh, I gotta look up this guy and all that. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Uh, and you don't have that projector right in front of you to tell you how much money that person has, what what do they have on their roster? I get that. I get that. That's partially why I do the two screen thing too.
1: I used to have two screens. I now have one gigantic one, so I have lots of room on the on the monitor to put all the windows up that I want to have up. It's just the question that at at every key point, right after a guy gets um, rostered by one of the competitors in the in the draft you have to take your eyes off the prize because you got to move over and click a couple of even a couple of clicks to assign the previously drafted player onto his roster and yeah sometimes i found when i was in tout wars when i was looking up at the screen with the actual draft going on the player had been going for a while and it was up to $7 and which means it's getting close to an end and you're starting to get the robot saying going going gone and now instead of having even 2 or 3 seconds to think about it when it's down at you know the $1 or $2 level now you're forced to make the decision under much more intense time pressure than you would have been had you been just paying attention to that part of it the whole time
2: right right and that's where you know and that's where like if if you're hyper prepared you know okay you I I think it was Casey Cha. I was listening to uh, our friend Vlad Settler from uh, Elite Fantasy Sports. Uh, He's been a frequent guest on Rotowire. He's in tout. He's in the draft and hold league. But he is a very avid NFBC player. And he hosted a podcast with a guy named Casey Cha, who is maybe the best at at the NFBC format, maybe the best all time. Uh, I never see him have a bad draft. He's not on Twitter. He doesn't have a website. But he he was – Vlad was able to get him on his uh, podcast, and one of the things that resonated with me is like the biggest value he gets is marking guys off that he's not interested in, and just you know, clearing, filtering into you know a, a player pool that's much smaller than most people are dealing with. So, for instance, with the data entry issue, he probably is pencil and, pencil and paper guy. I Even mean, he's, in fact, I recall he is. And he doesn't even bother like entering other people's picks. He'll just like, I know these are the guys I want, you know, and if there's a guy that – and if, I imagine this would be very handy in an auction, guy that's coming up that I don't want, fine. You know, I can – let's move on. I can start studying for my next nomination, start studying how I want to fill these slots. Knowing who you don't want is a really valuable skill.
1: It is, and I think it might be a little easier to play in a in a mixed league because in, a, in an only league sometimes – you can't afford the luxury of saying this is a guy I don't want down in the you know the uh, at certain parts of the draft maybe if you think that you know shortstop's unusually thick with talent then you can say well out of the very talented guys I don't want these four for whatever reason but I wonder if in an American League only situation like I, I know I felt like I was forced into taking players I didn't want just because the players I did want were taken at prices. I didn't feel like I wanted to pay. And so you hold your nose and you grab somebody that you didn't think you wanted.
2: Yeah, that happens. Sometimes I try to avoid that and just find the alternative to that, but you know, playing time is King, you know, you know that, uh, it's like, yeah, you can, you, there's a finite number of targets and everybody, a lot of people like your targets too. Uh, and so, and that also kind of would apply to draft strategy a little bit too. I suppose if you, if you want to have a broader pool to draw from, that means you probably can't afford to go out and spend big on too many high-priced targets. Like I noticed, you were pretty cheap on your pitching, uh, you know, at least cheaper on your pitching than I was. You were like 28% of your budget was on pitching, and I think 38% was on mine. I have a Garrett Cole on my roster. I have, you know, an expensive closer in uh, Hendrix. You know, if you do that, well, then you have to accept that you're going to have to be agnostic with some of your other spots.
1: Well, we were both in the Tout Wars American League-only draft. That was on Saturday morning. As you mentioned, it was online through fan tracks. Uh, in this instance, and in all instances, I suppose, in general, Jeff, how much of a strategy do you take into a draft as far as targeting players targeting uh, the structure of your drafts targeting the budget structure those kind of things and how much of it is uh less a fair or uh, ad-libbing as you go playing by the seat of your pants you
2: know it, it, it differs from year to year some years i i have this like really detailed strategy and it, but i i've noticed that when something goes wrong then it kind of things go kind of sideways and they always do then i'm a little like i all of a sudden i feel like flustered oh i gotta get this slot filled and like Instead, I was a little bit more like, I want to have the flexibility to, to to find values when they come because sometimes they're early, sometimes they're middle. You know, sometimes they can be the elite guy, and you know that 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 happens. Like for instance, yeah, uh, I I have found that in many instances, we we as a collective whole don't want to pay uh, pay for elite starting pitching or pay what I at least. I think the values are. If I, I run my values off of my projections, I see Garrett Cole as a forty-five to forty-seven dollar player, and I'm like, I don't want to spend forty on a starting pitcher though. Well, then you're giving up value. And let's face it, pockets of five-dollar values don't come by that often. Usually, they're bid within two, one to three dollars of it, and you know there's very little to be had. So when you get a guy like that, you know you got to be you have the flexibility to jump. So when Cole stopped at forty, I was there. It's like, okay, well, that's going to set my path a little bit. Sometimes the early stages of the bidding will kind of dictate the future strategy a little bit. And that'll, be, that'll kind of set me down that path. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be so locked in on a strategy that I'm passing up what I perceive to be pretty big bargains.
1: Your $45 valuation on Garrett Cole, all the valuations have to be based on some kind of expectation of a hitter pitcher split. Where did you set the hitter pitcher split that, that derived a $45 value for, for Garrett Cole.
2: I set it at sixty-eight thirty-two,
1: And he still you came know, up. that. Years
2: I might've said it at 70 or even 72, but I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's, I mean, it, it might m- match what the, the league does a little bit, but it's not what I, I want to do in terms of valuing the players. Does that make sense?
1: It does. Uh, I think that the, the hitter side of the split has been declining over the last few years, especially in experts' leagues. And even in snake drafts, if you assign a sort of a quasi-dollar value to the top rounds, you're seeing more of the starting pitching moving up the top rounds, which is an, a proxy for dollar value, you could say. And, and if you did the splits that way, I think you, what you would see is in TGFBI and the in a bunch of drafts that I was looking at, including the one I was in, gosh, the starting pitchers were flying off the board in the first and second rounds. A lot of them in the third. The, you know those second yep. tiers that we used to get in the seventh round are now up in the fifth round. Kentomayitas and Jose Barrios and stuff. So I think that the the industry. I don't know about uh, NFBC, the actual how that works uh, in the actual NFBC that Casey Chaw plays in, for instance. But whether they're hitter pitcher splits are, are moving but i think definitely the trend in the drafts i watch and play in uh, the hitter pitcher split has gone from usually sixty nine thirty one or 70 30 down to 66 34 in that range yeah i
2: noticed that a little bit too and i've noticed that the industry is typically lagged from the uh, behind the nfpc on that but not as much this year uh I- at least, you know, this, for instance, in the mixed labor draft, I did that early February. Uh, and I, I drafted right smack dab in the middle. And I think there was the standard three starters, you know, the three big aces in the first round. Maybe Bauer went in the first also. But there's this, as Derek Van Riper likes to call it, the yellow brick road in the second round. All these pitchers in a row, the yellow stickers. Uh, and I, I participated in that. Uh, and you know, it, it's funny. It didn't used to be that way in labor any and, and it didn't used to be that way. But I've noticed more in our community, it's also being pushed up a little bit too. But maybe not so much in the auction format. Certainly not as much in a uh, you know. There's still no overall component. Trades are still allowed here for us. You know, you know, you just have to win your league. You don't have to win an overall contest. So. Maybe you find that if the, the rest of the league is overvaluing it, you know, starting pitching well, then you will go the other way, and that can have some value too.
1: You spent top dollar on relievers. Liam Hendricks, you mentioned earlier. $23 was your bid for his stats. Uh, what was the rationale on Liam Hendricks at the top price for his closers?
2: Well, the AL is actually better than the AL in closers, but even in the mix, I like getting the guy that I know is, A, got the job, B, is good, and C, is going to be treated like a closer. Uh, there's not that many of those guys. You know, I, I I like a certain a few of them, handful of them here and there. I like Brian Presley quite a bit, uh, but as an example, but I just I th- and I think I like R- Trevor Rosenthal a little bit, but he had, even though with his nagging injuries this spring, but I just think and Hendricks is going to give me a little bit of K bonus, K's bonus as well. So I, I just like everything about him, and I, I like how he's being used. I think Tony Arusa helps him. So I was willing to go ahead and spend that extra dollar on him, and what that was the last dollar I would have spent on him if he went if he went one more unit I was done. Uh, but you know I I've I had a number of drafts where I built with the one closer and then kind of tried to kind of speculate on like a half closer later and been pretty pleased with the results so far.
1: Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at baseballhq.com, was in our league. And he was, for the first little while, he did nothing but nominate $1 proto closers or setup guys, yep. uh, you know, closers in waiting, uh, those kind of guys. And one of the guys he nominated was Nick Whitgren, and you went to $2. What were you thinking there?
2: Uh, I was thinking that Karinczak is not guaranteed to be the full-time closer. Uh, he has a pretty high walk rate. Whitgren's a good pitcher. In an AL-only league like this, even if he's not closing, he still has value. We're going to, you know, I, I'd either spend $2 in the end game or I'd spend $2 now. I don't see much of a difference. Uh, I, I like Doug's strategy nominating, nominating, but it's kind of interesting. He only got one of those guys on his roster. Uh, he got Raphael DeLise. I guess he filmed Maton late, too. But of all those guys he nominated early, he didn't get too many of them. Uh, everyone was getting plus one a little bit. Maybe that was his design. He wanted people to spend the extra dollar on that. Uh, but I, I like Chad Green, like Larry spent $2 on Chad Green. That seemed to work for him pretty well. Uh, there's a handful of guys like that out there. Um, and yeah, it's a fun strategy. And it, it throws people off sometimes when you bring up a guy like that early. I, I think it's a great auction technique. You know, nominate a guy in the end game early. If you know you liked it, maybe you'll sneak him in for a dollar. Otherwise, well, okay, fine. At least you're getting other people to kind of – you're seeing what the league's going to value these guys at.
1: You rostered Aaron Judge's stats, a $30 bid for those, and in your post-draft analysis at Rotowire, you said, I don't think a highly competitive league is won by cautious decisions. I thought that almost sounded like something you could put on a T-shirt. Uh, what uh, <laughs> what were you thinking there?
2: Okay, because – well, here's the thing. I, I At the first break, I posted what I had on my roster, and I spent a lot early on. I think – I. I I was low man on the money, uh, uh, money remaining list for a long part of this draft. And everyone's like, Oh, you know, everyone sees names like, Ooh, I love that, but I'm not sure about judge. And two things I was like, well, a, first of all, it's a uh, on base league. And I think he's especially more valuable in an on base league, but B, you know, I just think you, you can do risk avoidance a little bit. I, I think in this league though, where there's really not, I, I finished second last year. No one remembers. No one cares. Um, it, you, you have to try to win. And I think judge is a guy that can be a big difference maker. I think he's obviously playing, you know, injury is the risk here. Uh, I like, but I, for instance, I think he's not as risky as his teammate, John Carlos Stanton. Uh, and he, and he gets the outfield spot. So I think you have to take some chances at times you have to, you know, there's going to be some risk. You know, I, and I know you're going to bring up the counter example of Larry uh, Schechter, who, you no, know, he he doesn't appear to be taking risks but i mean he takes he takes takes risks in other ways he takes he go, he rosters guys that people don't aren't don't necessarily think all that highly of now uh, because he thinks he's getting a bargain but those are still risks too cuz those guys can flame out and they just as easily as others like he rostered Ruben Neto Dor who could have a 220 you know or a 290 on base you know and just crushes on base or he'll do a strategy where he just punts on base i've seen him do that before uh so i i i think you know, boldness can come in a lot of different directions, not just in injury risk.
1: You're right about Larry Schechter. He is a fairly cautious bidder, and there's always a couple in every draft. Uh, we had I think Mike Podhorser actually bid so cautiously that he ended up leaving, I think, fourteen dollars unspent at the end of the draft. He was the one guy who didn't spend his full two sixty. And I think that's partly because his usual tactical approach is not to bid heavily and to wait till those middle rounds and start snapping up bargains but and this relates to something we were talking about before we started recording and that is it's very it seems to me it's getting tougher to adopt a strategy where you're kind of counting on getting those middle round bargains right because there's so many other guys who are thinking kind of of doing the same thing including guys who are just waiting in general and being cautious, but also including guys who were aggressive early and are perfectly willing to take $6 guys at the end and they transfer all of that bidding power into the middle rounds where they're competing with you if you've been sitting there the whole time and you don't end up getting yeah. bargains. I think all those middle round guys, you know, they were within a dollar or two of price, just like you said.
2: Well, and it's funny because some of the guys that are notorious for being for waiting, uh, you know, didn't this year. Mike Gianella was that way. I think a couple of years ago, I vividly recall him, you know, dominant, you know, crushing the middle game, being the first one done by like an hour over us. Uh, You mentioned Mike, he he did the opposite. He used to be the guy that always go after trout and not, I don't even think he was in on the bidding on trout this year. Rob Liebowitz rarely has a $30 player. He had two this year in Bregman and Springer, Uh, you know, Doug Dennis, on the other hand, kind of held true. He, this is, he used the same tactic, an AL talent that he did an NL labor where he barely spent anything early on, and then just tried to pick off guys in the middle the round. And it seemed like he and Larry were at each other's throats a lot d- during the middle and end games. And you know, it can work if you feel like you're getting your bargains there. I guess some of that depends on your your projections and your valuations too, where you find the, where you find pockets of value. I, I try not to preordain where I'm going to find them. I try to just jump on them when I see them.
1: You mentioned at one point in your post-draft article at Rotowire that you waited more than an hour at one point between the two players that you got. And I wondered, how do you manage that feeling you get in an an auction format, especially you get that ants in your pants feeling that you just want to get in on the action and you want to roster a guy and then one one after another, they're slipping by about one every minute. How how do you contain yourself under those circumstances was what I was wondering.
2: It's tough, but you have to. I mean... The, if you if you have you especially have to do that in, in in the instance when you spend early. Because if you get caught spending on those mid-tier guys and too 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 frequently, then you're really hamstrung in the end game. Maybe you want, you know, and, and in an only league, it's hard to get by with that. I know it's a little bit different, like in the head-to-head, the towers Wars head-to-head, Clay Link had 10 $1 players, but that was kind of by his design because it was a 12-team mixed league. It's a little bit different. In a 12-team Ale-only league. Really don't want that. So you really have to be be patient with that. And I was mostly patient. I kind of messed up there too a little bit at the end, uh, and I, I got stuck with a couple of one, too many uh, one dollar players than I would have liked.
1: It's become something of a laugh line in Tout that Jeff always gets Nelson Cruz and you got Nelson Cruz's stats this year $24 seems right in line with value, maybe even a bargain. And one reason that you are happy to go with that DH and not worry about the, uh, crowding the slot too soon is that Tout Wars has relatively unique rostering rules in only leagues. How does that work and how did it affect your decisions about DH only players?
2: Yeah, sure uh, well first of all there's only four off spots there's not five there's four a utility and a swingman swingman can be a second utility it can be a tenth pitcher either way though you know you're, you're not not punished as much for having the for having the extra for having the utility player because you still have one more spot um, so the only punishment you get is perhaps playing time when the you know, interleague play happens you do have to deal with that but uh, specifically with Nelson Cruz, When's the last time anybody lost on rostering his stats? It's been a long time. He, he, very similar to David Ortiz, that you know he he seems because of the DH only aspect of his his position. You know he goes he goes underpriced every single year, and I know he's thirty nine, but it's not like he's there might be a tiny crack in the foundation. But it's not it's not like he's tearing us under. He's not going to go Encarnacion on us here.
1: Brad Keller stats for five bucks, a couple of bucks lower than Domingo Herman and you say Kikuchi, both of whom you said you would have preferred, but you made an important note about hindsight in bidding having to do with what might have happened if you'd gone the extra dollar on either of those bids for Herman and Kikuchi. What was your thinking along those lines? It was interesting.
2: Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I really didn't want to spend more on five in a pitcher just because I had a lot of hitting slots to fill, but I could have gone eight on, you know, Herman or Kikuchi and then gotten a $1 pitcher instead to pair it with. But there's no guarantee I would have got him at eight. You know, I could, I could, it could have kept going. Uh, And, you know, both those guys, I think Herman and Kikuchi went before Keller. So I would have probably known, but say if there was another guy I liked later, and I think this is important. Uh, It's not just, you know, you don't know, like, if that guy you prefer that you have at a $5 slot is actually going to go for five, there might be, all it takes is one other uh, player in the league that likes them and has more flexibility in their budget. And all of a sudden you're starting to chase the price up there. So you take the guy that you can get when you can get him sometimes at that, spot, at that point. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do like both of those pitchers better and hope, honestly, I, I I'm bummed out that it's only a $2 difference, but, Again, we don't, it would have been three plus for me. It could have been, t- could have been five. And then what are you going to do?
1: You acquired Josh Fleming stats as well, because you thought there might be an unorthodox path to value. What was that unorthodox path to value about?
2: So he may start, he may not. The Rays are crowded in their rotation right now. And despite losing two starters, you know, it, it is a possibility that he doesn't start, but. You know, the Rays have modeled, you know, they've been ideal about using closers and tandem starters. Wouldn't it be neat to see like Rich Hill go three or four innings and then Fleming come in right after that? And Rich Hill is a guy that's not going to go deep into games that often. And so you pair him up with Fleming, have Fleming pitch the fifth, sixth and seventh. Rays have a lead. Voila, you get your win with Fleming. I mean, it's the Ryan Yarborough career path. I mean, when he won 16 wins. Uh, when he had 16 wins a couple years ago, uh, in part is because he always had an opener in front of him. And it was a beautiful thing.
1: In the only league format, Jeff, how much of your final stats total do you expect is going to come from the players that you acquired at draft and how much is going to come from in season roster changes through free agent pickups and trades?
2: So I don't have a good percentage number for you. I'd just be spitballing if I said that, but it's more significant in an only than it would be, say, in a in a in some of the snake draft mixed leagues where Fab is much more important. This year, however, I think there'll be a greater percentage on value coming into the league just because there are more unknowns. Whether it's p- pitcher usage, whether it's all these minor leaguers that didn't get we didn't get to see last year, that we didn't roster, uh, or that we, you know, you know, the exact gallons of the world who may not have made the alternate training camp sites last year. We didn't get to see that big bump in uh, growth in that in that one in, our, in his minor league season. You're going to see guys like that emerge this year, and maybe the teams already know about some of these guys. But uh, and in fact, we might from the spring training stats. But it's still we're dealing with insufficient information. So I think more than ever is going to come into the pool this year than ever uh, than other years. That said, it's it's tight. You know, it's an only league. You've, you've been through this ringer before. It's hard to find good hitters on the waiver wire. Hard to find playing time, even in some cases, especially once we are able to stash our injured guys on IL spots. We have unlimited IL spots, so there's not as much churn. You know, if a guy's hurt, we just stash him and get another guy. Uh, whereas opposed to, say, like the NFPC, where you have seven reserve spots, no IL spots. When a guy gets hurt, you have to, you know, you have to make that tough decision whether they cut him or or, or stash him and wait. Uh, here, at least we can park them on IL.
1: That is a really impactful difference in the rules. Which one do you like better? Which way do you think is a better for the competition?
2: I prefer the NFPC style, but I also like that I'm in formats with both. You know, I, I, you know there are different challenges. You know, our, our good friend, the late, great Lauren Michaels always used to say, just tell me the rules, I'll, give me a spreadsheet, and I'll find a way to beat you. Um, and I think you have to take that approach.
1: And one last thing, Jeff, only tangentially related to Tout Wars, but your longtime colleague Chris Liss of Rotowire acquired the stats of uh, Tampa starter Tyler Glasnow in our auction. And a while back on your SiriusXM show, Chris said he thinks Glasgow could be a Cy Young winner this season, and you disagreed. I'm wondering why he thinks so highly of Tyler Glasnow and why you don't.
2: Well, I'll I'll give you my side of it, at least, that I, I just don't see the innings. I, I just see how he's been managed throughout his career. Uh and I think that plus the walk rate holds him back a little bit. I, I mean and Chris makes the case that you know tall pitcher, they 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 peak later. He could have a Randy Johnson like uh you know finally putting it all together season. That's possible. I mean, he's shown us teases with this before. I mean, the strikeout rate's so high. I get it. I just want to pay what I think is full freight for that. Now If Chris is right, that's not, he didn't pay full freight. Full freight would be 40 if you're, you know, if you really think that's what his upside is. But of course, no one's going to pay that. But I I have noticed a lot of people, a lot of people, his his price is going up in a lot of different places. So it's possible that, you know, kind of getting that mindset there. But I just think the rays are the rays. And they're not just because, you know, Snell's gone and and Morton's gone and, you know, other guys have to fill more innings. I don't think they're going to change their ways. I think they'll have next man up instead, and so I still see Glass now going five innings a lot. Uh, I don't see him going seven that frequently.
1: And you mentioned your uh, your dollar days guys that you picked up in the draft. Uh, you, there were five of them, and I wouldn't mind asking you about a couple. Uh, one of them was Chance Cisco, and this seemed like a really good get. I was jealous of you, and you snagged Chance Cisco in dollar days because I, wa- I was hoping to get him myself, but you beat me to it.
2: Well, I already had Pedro Severino, so that was already nice to pair them up. Pair him up together there. Take your time, Adley Rushman. You know, make sure let's let's manage, let's go three weeks into next season before we call him up, Baltimore. Please let's let's, pre, let's preserve that uh, service time. But no, uh, Cisco's never gotten the opportunity. I want to say chance, but that would be saying on brand too much. But uh, you know, he, he's got plenty of power. He takes walks in an OBP league. That's nice. He's got prospect pedigree. Why did they never give him the full opportunity to play? I don't know. Uh, but this is kind of his last opportunity to do so. I, and for a dollar catcher, give me a guy that can do something as opposed to just, well, he's going to get some point time. He actually has an opportunity to be a positive. That's the thing I like about him.
1: You drafted a couple of infielders in the end game: Jeff. Uh, Ledmus Diaz of Houston and Isaac Paredes of Detroit. Give us a rundown on... Uh... A lot of why you pick guys like that is because they're there and you're running out of options. But what do you like about these two fellows?
2: Um, well, Diaz has got a roster spot locked in for sure. That's one thing. And given that, I'm, I'm just kind of crying for playing time with that middle in- infield spot. he's In previous years, he's qualified at other places. You, know, you look at the Astros. Alex Breckman has been dealing with a bad hamstring. Uh, Jose Altuve has missed 30-plus games each of the last three seasons, I think, on prorated last year. Uh, you yeah, know, they've got some uncertainty in center field. Let's face it, Miles Straw is not exactly lock solid. He's going to be in there all season long, slump proof. Uh, so I, I thought that there's chances for him to get a, a, a playing time in a lot of different places and hopefully he'll qualify in a lot of different places too. Paredes, that's related to the fact that I got Renato Nunez. Anytime you can, you know, corner the Tigers' corners, you got to do it. You got to, one, one must pounce like a, like a tiger pounce on them. But uh, now Paredes, I mean, we'll see. There's some noise that he might make the team at the expense of Renato Nunez. And honestly, I didn't really account for that when I went to three on Nunez. I'm kind of disappointed in myself for not being on top of that. But I just think that Nunez is a better hitter. Paredes is probably a better fielder. Uh, Nunez got a late start because of COVID. Uh, so that might be something that uh, works against him. But I think Nunez is eventually going to get, a, whether it's with the Tigers or someone else, he can hit. So uh, even if Paredes beats him out, I I think he'll still have value in him. I think both can play. play. So we'll see how that works out.
1: On the pitching side, a couple of relievers. Tyler Duffy in Minnesota, J.P. Wendelkin in Oakland, both good pitchers. These are the kind of guys who fit in well on a lot of uh, AL-only style uh, fantasy formats.
2: Yeah, I rostered Duffy last year in this league. Uh, He was perfectly fine. Uh, I was happy to have him. and. Yeah, uh, you know, he, he, he might even backdoor into two to three saves. Uh, you know, keep in mind, Rocco Baldelli is the manager of the Twins, and he comes from the Rays, and, you know, he kind of has the same sort of mindset on how to manage a bullpen. So you might see like five or six guys get saves. So I was definitely not going to pay full price for Alex Colomay uh, just because of that, for that reason, just because I think that there might be some management issues. I, you have Colomay, but you also didn't pay full price. You got him for 12. Were you happy with that? And you got Rogers with him.
1: I was happy to get both of them. I know that the the knock on the strategy or the tactic is that you're paying basically full price for one closer. I think that they are going to probably get like 55, 40, so 95% of the saves will go to those two guys. I just happen to think Minnesota's going to win a lot of games this year, and uh, mm-hmm. I think research has shown that teams that win lots of games generate the most saves, and And I think the total would be 19, something like that. Yeah,
2: 12 and 8 respectively I've got it in front of me here.
1: 20 bucks for for a solid closer on a good team. You know, you paid 23 for a solid closer on a good team. In in that sense I feel like we're uh, relatively equal plus I like uh, Taylor Rogers ratios and the support he gives in those in the other categories too, so
2: Sure, I can see it.
1: Well, Jeff, this has been super interesting. Uh, as you know, I like to ask our guests to talk about their boons and banes for the coming season. Guys, you think will provide uh, good value or poor value for their teams in fantasy baseball if you don't mind we could start with some boons the guys you think will be top values in the coming season in the american league who's a hitter you think is going to be a boon
2: okay um let's go with a couple guys here that i i i the I, guy that is on my roster we didn't mention yet is joey wendell uh i got him for seven in this league i've got him for less than others and the thing is uh, think, think about uh what, what I like about uh Wendell is first of all, three positions of qualification and he runs, you know, and the sprint speed scores support the stolen bases. And I and and moreover, he's awesome defensively. That means he finds ways in the games. Uh I like seeing guys like that. The Rays can be a little frustrating with all their platoons. It, you know, what works for the Rays hurts us in fantasy sometimes. But I, I find myself getting Wendell a lot of times in the end game. He fits what I need to get. Uh I also like Enrique Hernandez late in end games Uh batting lead off for the Red Sox. Uh, you get him around pick 400 in the NFBC right now. Uh, he's going to score a lot more runs than people realize. I, I, I really like what the, his, his opportunity there. In the fact, that he's second and outfield. You like that too. Uh, it gives you a little bit of added bonus. So those are two guys I like to grab late in the AL.
1: In the national league, how about a boon hitter or hitters?
2: Uh, a couple guys. Uh, I, I've been finding myself uh, targeting uh, Nick Senzel. I think he's starting to become a little bit, it, it's not as cost, you know, it's getting a little cost prohibitive now. He's starting to get up there in price. Uh, I think as people try to do their studying and figure out who their late speed targets are, they're finding others wanting and they find themselves starting to price those guys up a little bit. So, but nonetheless, I I got him a lot early on in draft season. I may not be able to get him this upcoming week when I've got my two NFPC drafts. So we'll see. Uh, Another guy I like late. Uh, Funny thing is, I think the NL is top, very top heavy. I think there's a lot of great early hitters in the NL, but not as many as as late. But let's trade, finding another NL hitter kind of late. Uh, I think the San Francisco Giants provide a handful of them. Brandon Belt. you know he because of his heel injury might not be ready for the start of the season, that's really depressed his price. I, I think Evan Longoria is now the old and boring guy as opposed to the young and trendy guy who's on the raise, but he, he's gonna play, and I think that ballpark's not as scary as it used to be, too. So I think you, he can be uh, of use. And I, you know, higher in the draft, I'm still a believer in Mike Dostrinsky, and I still think he doesn't go full price for what he brings to the table. I think there's some people that are still like, I don't believe prove it to me in a full season, et cetera. So I end up taking him.
1: Over to the mound. How about an American League pitcher who could be a boon?
2: You say Kikuchi. we mentioned him earlier. I like his uh swing strike rate. I like it, you know, swing and miss. I like that he's in better shape. I like a lot of things about him. I've been getting him in a lot of places. Uh just not tout wars, unfortunately. Uh, that, that was that was a bummer that I didn't get him. Uh, others that I kind of like late uh I like Jordan Montgomery. Uh, I, I think that he's going to be taking the next step. I worry about innings management with him just a little bit. The Yankees have a lot of depth uh, and they may choose to like go six starters at times may skip a start here and there. That makes me worry just a little bit about him, but I still like him. Uh, and Nate Valdi is kind of fun too. Brian Bloomfield has been t- talking him up and you know he's on a lot of his bloom boards and which makes it, you know, don't get in a bidding war with with Ryan Bloomfield on Nadia Valdi. You're just not going to win that. But uh, that that's another guy I don't mind.
1: And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher or pitchers?
2: C. Uh, I, I, D. Alcantara is my guy. I get him everywhere. Uh, I like the velocity increase. I like that the slow trickle up and strikeout rate, along with the slow trickle down of the walk uh, rate. He's only 24. Turns 25 this season. I think this is going to be. Uh, another another guy that I want to have in a lot of different places.
1: A lot of good young starters in that uh, Miami situation and the team yes. is is not that great. I think they're going to be more competitive than people think this year. But yeah, a lot of choices in Miami for sure. And I've heard some interesting debates about who's the best choice of all those young Miami starters and seems to be a three-way race. You know, it's like uh, everybody likes, well, maybe even four. Everybody likes everybody in that rotation. I like all five,
2: Patrick. I I, I, I Give me Rogers too. Uh, I'll throw him on my roster in the late game. He's been throwing great this spring. Uh, they, they think Highland And there's more help coming too. You know whether it's yeah uh, you know whether it's Max Meyer, uh, whether it's Edgar uh, Ramirez. I mean they're they're just loaded.
1: Jeff Erickson's boons: Joey Wendell of Tampa, Enrique Hernandez of Boston, Nick Senzel of Cincinnati, and three San Francisco Giants: Brandon Belt, Evan Longoria, Mike Isseymski. American League boon pitchers: Yusei Kikuchi, Jordan Montgomery, and Nathan Eovaldi, and a National League boon. Pitcher Sandy Alcantara of Miami. Let's move on to your baines, Jeff. These are players you think have a good chance of disappointing fantasy managers this season. Again, let's start in the American League. Who could be a bane hitter?
2: Okay, uh, there's a couple guys. I honestly, I have found myself not rostering. Uh, I, I still haven't gotten uh, any shares of Alberto Mondesi. I'm stubborn. I I probably should know better. I just I can't do it. I just can't. I, I see the strikeouts. I see the lack of walks. I see the, you know, Bobby Witt tearing it up, and I know he's down. He got sent down to the minor league camp just now, but I, I see him moving down to the bottom of the order at some point. Now, Rob Silver wrote a pretty good article for us uh, on RotoWire talking about you know how what it will take for him to get the stolen bases. You know, in terms of uh, that, many are projecting for him in terms like stolen base opportunity. It's a stat that I think ron chandler might have first uh pointed out at least i first saw it on hq i don't know if it's ron or if it was another one, one of ron's writers but you know he 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 needs to be at the top of his soul and base opportunity to meet the expectations that people are asking for for any reason he doesn't meet that and he only gets you say 25 to 30 stolen bases he's a he's a huge loss at that price uh i i can't get on board with second round edelberto mondesi
1: no, I can't either. I've had this discussion with other guests on the podcast and between the it's not just the shortage of stolen base opportunities. And I believe that Rob Silver's calculation was if you even if you accept his very high stolen base success rate, you still if you do the arithmetic working backwards, you need a certain number of stolen base opportunities at that success rate to get the fifty right. bags or sixty bags that people have been proposing. And if he, if he maintains this very low on-base percentage, he just can't do it, unless he hits into a million uh, uh, fielder choices and you know, gets on first just by getting somebody else out and killing his on-base percentage in that way. But uh, the other part of it, of course, is uh, all those strikeouts means fewer runs, fewer RBIs, because he's just not on base often enough to get around and score. Yep. Who's a National League hitter who you think is going to be a bane?
2: I have to go with another stolen base guy, Victor Robles. I know uh, he's starting to cl- having a good, pretty pretty good spring. People are starting to get excited about him again, batting lead off again. I'm just not there for it, Patrick. I just I, I look at all the Statcast data. I, I maybe he develops this year. I know I have him in XFL. I'm keeping him in leagues where I have him as a keeper. It's it's a weird paradox. I'm not. I'm just not willing to double down on him. I'm not willing to uh, go and pay sixth seventh eighth round price on him and i think that's where he's moving towards in a 15 team format i i just i think there's way too much risk there for him to get thrown back towards the bottom of the order and all of a sudden be that guy that is you know it, it all of a sudden is going to be that guy that gets you 15 to 20 stolen bases as opposed to 30 and he gets you 10 homers instead of 15 to 20
1: Yeah, you know, there's these intangibles and the news and noise things that we talk about all the time, but the thing about Victor Robles that I'll never forget was we were at a game at the Arizona Fall League a couple of years ago, whenever, whatever year it was that Robles was down there playing, and he popped up to to the infield and he just walked about six or seven paces and just veered off and went to the dugout, and the manager Hmm. just kicked him out of the game right away, and I thought to myself, you know, that guy's attitude is going to impede his ability to reach his potential because guys with that attitude tend to find things to get upset about or to be miffed about or be poor poor pitiful me now in this off season, i've heard that he's rededicated himself you mentioned he got in shape lost some weight all this kind of stuff and i wonder if he does get his head on straight he certainly had the talent but i think i'm going to be one of those guys who wants to see it in action first before I commit and then which means next year he'll be you know third round or something with his 25 home runs and 45 stolen bases and none of us will be able to to pay the freight but uh, that's the way it goes I guess over to the mound again uh, American League pitcher who could be a bane I'm gonna try to go
2: high enough for it a uh, be of use I'm not gonna pay okay so I'm not gonna pay up for Kenta Maeda coming off his career season had a 0.75 whip just you know, it, it's completely out of line with all of his ratios, and you know that—that's the thing I don't like about uh, you know some of the things like that. He was one of those guys that fully benefited from the centralized schedule, where he played only central division teams in the AL and NL. Uh, he didn't have to go a full season in, in previous years. You know, durability has been a concern. None of that. You know, it was like the perfect like it wasn't quite a control and an experiment, but it was a perfect setup for him. Uh, I've got him closer to like. Eighty to hundred, he's going forty-five to fifty to sixty or so. I, I just, I'm not going to have him on any of my teams this year. I like the guy, but this is so far out of line with where we used to draft him. And I just don't think that much has changed about his pitch mix. And, and you know, being in Minnesota, maybe getting a better pitching coach. I don't think it's. I think it's more environment in, in a two two month heater than anything else. And I just don't think I'm going to pay that price for him.
1: I do hear a lot of Kent Maeda supporters citing the fact that uh, the pitch, pitching coach there, Wes Johnson, is uh, kind of a savant. He really has done some very good work uh, both at the college level, but then coming up to Major League Baseball right away seems like a really good pitching coach. But I'm with you. I, you know, two months of success does not equate to six months of success, and any pitcher can have, you know, a reasonably decent hot streak. Uh, and finally, in the National League, who's a bane pitcher for you? Um.
2: I don't have any Max Freed this year. He's a good pitcher. I worry about how deep he's going to go into games. I don't think his whip will be all that great. Uh, I don't, you know, he was a 109 last year. But again, I I think he was a little hit lucky last year. And I've got him closer to like a 1-2 this year. And that's just, you know, where he's going, you, you need to have better ratios than what I think he's going to have. I think this is, you know, he averaged five innings to start last season. And I, I, so it makes. I don't think he goes much more than like 150 this season. Uh, I, I, I think he's getting treated like he's already there. He's a durable ace, and I don't think he's quite there yet.
1: Jeff Erickson's Baines, Adalberto Mondesi, Victor Robles, Kent Maida, Max Freed. Uh, Jeff, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Jeff Erickson.
2: Uh, sure, absolutely. First of all, on Rotowire.com, and you can get a free 10 day trial. Just go to Rotowire.com/free. Uh, to check out all of my writing and everybody else on the site uh, as well, uh, but I'm all I, I'm omnipresent. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm everywhere. But uh, I'm on X and Fantasy five days a week, Sunday through Thursday. Uh, on Sunday, we're on uh, from uh, one to three Eastern Time. Uh, Monday through Thursday is twelve to two Eastern Time. Through three days a week on the RotoWire Fantasy Baseball podcast as well, and of course, I'm on Twitter. Way too much at Jeff underscore Erickson.
1: And Erickson has a K in it. We want to make sure to to get that in. It's E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. That's right. Jeff, thanks very much for doing this. I do appreciate it, and I hope we have a fun season this year in Telt Wars. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: Maybe we'll work out a trade at some point, too. I I like that this has become more of a trading league lately, and hopefully that'll happen. But uh, good luck this year. May all of our closers keep their job and not get hurt.
1: Jeff Erickson writes at Rotowire and broadcasts at SiriusXM, also a podcaster. Coming up, we have our second expert interview with Mike Gianella. Right now, though, time in the show when I get to tell you about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus looks at the five teams in the National League Central, including those running Cardinals. In scouting, analyst Chris Blessing checks on the prospects who were traded in this past offseason, including Mets outfielder Khalil Lee and four Tampa prospects led by Luis Patino. In facts and flukes, analyst Brent Chesser looks at five National Leaguers, including St. Louis reliever Giovanni Gallegos, Miami first baseman Jesus Aguilar, and Atlanta third baseman Austin Riley. Those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time. Performance validation and facts and flukes. There's news coverage and playing time today. Roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for starting pitchers, relievers, and batters. There's the Market Pulse, taking a look at what's going on in the marketplace, the big hurt for injury research, as well as fantasy baseball research and all kinds of tools to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Let me say
2: something about greenies. First of all, greenies were not performance
0: enhancers.
2: At the best, they allowed a guy with a hangover or somebody who didn't get any sleep that night to be more alert, and he was able to play up to his normal ability. So they were performance enablers. They were not in performance enhancers. They did not. They did not make him a better player than he ordinarily would. That's the difference between amphetamines and these uh, uh, human growth hormones and, and steroids. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that's okay. I, I think there should be a ban on amphetamines too because they're not healthy. But they have to be put into a different category. Uh, you know, than than the. Uh, Human growth hormones—they're they're probably something a little bit better than a cup of coffee in terms of the stimulation that you get. So I think you—you you need to, the baseball needs to make a distinction there.
0: Baseball HQ Radio.
1: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview on this Two-Tow Tuesday with Mike Gianella baseball prospectus and their flags fly forever podcast mike gianella welcome back to the show
0: hey patrick thanks as always for having me i love being on your show
1: how many leagues have you drafted this year
0: um well if you include a score sheet league that i'm in seven uh if you're talking about straight like you know roto or or fan i guess whatever you want to call it now uh, six Uh, i'll include the score sheet and say seven
1: and uh, i know a couple of those must be expert leagues do you still draft in a home league
0: I do. Um, actually, those are all expert leagues. Um, I have, my home league is, is old school, 4x4. Four four. It's still coming up uh, in like right after the season, the way we've always done it, so it'll be the weekend after the season starts.
1: How long has that league been going?
0: Uh, that league started in 1987. Uh, I have not been in it since 1987. I'm not quite that old. I, I joined in
1: 1996. What do you remember about the old days of playing that is different from now?
0: I mean, the the biggest thing I remember is, you know, no internet. And it's always funny, you know, people under a certain age kind of, like, you know, gape at this. But, you know, trying to find information from newspapers, you know, buying buying Baseball Weekly back when it was Baseball Weekly every week. Uh, but the only thing I remember is just constantly talking to people on the phone. There, there's that, that league you mentioned, you know, so 1996, uh, I did a Sweeney plan, which is, you know, four by four, you don't do power. I came really close to winning, but I didn't win. I called up everybody else who like finished, you know, in the top slots and, you know, to the people, we had a short five minute conversation, you know, oh, whatever, you know, thank you. Goodbye. This other guy who I barely knew at that point, we, we talked for like, I don't know, 90 minutes. We really hit it off and talked to mushroom season. And for years, he was like one of my best friends. Um, I don't think you get that so much anymore with like email and yeah, I know you can zoom and, and you can you know talk to people via video on your phone, but there's just something about picking up the phone. I know it makes me sound like an old man, but that that really was special. And then there was really something about that connection that doesn't quite exist now the way it does. It feels more like, like business a lot of times in some of these leagues.
1: Yeah, I consider myself to have some pretty good friends that I've made in experts leagues over the years, just from the interaction at the draft when we used to be able to draft in person and those kinds of things. But my old home league that I played in, those were some pretty good friends, and I had the same experience you did. There, were, You know, you could talk baseball and talk about the players with most of the guys, but there was one or two guys that uh, really wanted to get into the theory of it and talk about why are you structuring your budget this way, and what do you think about these punting plans? and all this kind of stuff and you could talk well into the night didn't mind you this is when i was single so you had <laughs> a little less time pressure as far as uh, you know the wife coming and saying it's 2:30 in the morning get to bed you got to go to work you know and uh, that kind of stuff but uh, i really miss that part i miss the slowness of it i guess and in in a certain way i think that's why i kind of enjoy the online leagues where you have a lot of time to make your picks like Two three hours at a time instead of you got to you got to move you got to move you got to move. The TGFBI is an example of a real nice paced slow draft that takes you know weeks, but there's a lot of interaction during it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of like the slow draft. I, I do four hours might be a little bit long for for the pick, and I, I like that you have the time there. I don't necessarily like people who use that time for most of their picks, but you are right. It, it is nice that you know, let's say you're toward the end and there's three players you're looking at and you want to go to baseball prospectus or baseball hq and and research you know a player players you can do that in like half an hour 40 minutes and and really dig into a pick whereas yes in a regular draft if it's it's just a minute you don't have that time pretty much you're just going off of your list and it's like okay i gotta you know just pick this player as as quickly as possible so yeah I, i do enjoy the slow drafts
1: i was talking with jeff erickson earlier about the uh problem that i have with uh using draft software to try to keep up it's just data entry you know you're clicking on a player and then assigning him to a team and writing in his salary meanwhile the draft room is going berserk with the bidding and and you're trying to click on a bid and you get outbid because somebody else it's it's all a nightmare i mean it's that's part of the fun is the excitement of it but i there's something to be said for a slower process where like you said you can um when you're facing down a, a your pick is coming up and you know, you're going to choose one or two guys, then you can dig into them a little bit just to make sure you're making the best possible pick. And then the data entry can take place in its own pace.
0: Yeah. I I try to simplify that for my leagues. Like even being home, um, I don't use draft software and I don't use category targets like during, I know a lot of people do and they swear by them, but I I feel like you're looking at a lot of stuff and sometimes honestly you're fooling yourself into thinking that you have a better team and you actually do. Um, but what I do do is I, I use Excel and I just keep filtering on the players that are taken already. And, you know, I know kind of see how much money is left in the salary cap draft versus how much there's left to spend. You know, we'll get into this. I think we talk about labor and a little bit later. And it gives me idea if, if I think the room is overspending or over underspending. So I do like to track that. But I do agree with you that you don't want to do too much. It's like overstimulation. And in the end you're sort of taking away from your goal, which is to build a good team by look having too much information in a fast moving environment.
1: In the drafts you've had so far this year, Mike, what things do you feel you've done consistently well?
0: Um probably the the thing I've done I, I want to say the best is is managing as I go, as opposed to getting upset or, or beating myself for oh this didn't happen the way I wanted it to, or, or you know I, I expected this and, and this happened. I think sometimes in the past I, I might make a mistake. We all make mistakes in these. We're, we're playing against a bunch of really good people, and especially with the online component, it, it's moved so fast. People commented the tout the tout salary cap drafts in particular move so fast. So. You know I've I've made a couple of minor mistakes, but instead of being like, oh no, I made this mistake and, and really getting upset and missing out on opportunities, I've just adjusted really quickly and, and kind of gone with, you know, what has happened. I think it's improved my teams a little bit more as a result that if like I said, I was like, oh no, I didn't get this player. How could I let him go for this price? And then just sat there for, you know, two rounds and, and beat myself up over it.
1: Right. Was it Mike Tyson who said everybody has a plan until he gets punched in the face and and uh that's what I've found every time I come in with a, into a draft with a pretty rigid plan about how I'm going to do it uh, after three picks, it's out the window because, you know, somebody paid 50 bucks for Mike Trout, for example. And speaking of that, we were both in the Tout Wars American League only draft on this past Saturday. How did you feel your draft went? You took Mike Trout for 50 bucks. Yeah, Mike,
0: Mike Trout went for 50 and he was the, the first player off the board. And so so last year, I don't know if you remember, I they they changed the rules. They they got rid of the innings requirement. And I decided in part because of the short season or potential for a short season at that point to to try no starting pitchers. Uh this year that wasn't my plan per se, but I was willing to maybe do that if if the pitching prices on the top were too high or if all the pitching prices kind of went up and up. And so what wound up happening is I did buy or did take a lot of starting pitchers, but I believe I spent the fewest on on those pitchers out of you know anybody in the room. I, th- I believe I spent 54 on my nine pitchers. Um, I didn't take a closer, which wasn't by design, but uh, again, I, I had some flexibility or, or rigidity or lack of rigidity as far as that goes. So I think it went okay from the standpoint that when you spend over $200 on your offense, you know, unless you... Wildly overspend on any one player, which I don't think I did. That your offense is going to be good, so it's just going to come down to how I do with the pitching. I'm going to need to stream and you know hope I I get a closer. I've got a couple of you know potential closers in, in Brian Garcia on Detroit and a bunch of pitchers on reserve. Where it's like you, know, you never know. It's, it's a long season, um, and then the starters. It's just going to be a matter of streaming the right ones in and out, and you know seeing how the ones I picked up did.
1: Yeah, I noticed that you had no obvious save sources and that seventy-eight twenty-two 22 hit-pitch split was the biggest in the draft as far as the turning towards the hitting side, but you say that wasn't actually a, a set plan going in? It wasn't a set
0: plan, although again, I, I had a feeling my, my pitching bid limits were lower on the top pitchers than others, so while it wasn't a set plan I had a feeling that was going to play out that way. The one pitcher that I, I kind of did aggressively price who I thought would be my anchor was Young Jin Ryu on, on the Jays. Uh, but Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ, your colleague was sitting there as he often does with, with a ton of money. Um, he outbid me on Ryu. He outbid me on Joey Gallo, who was another one of my, my targets really someone I was looking at based on how aggressively I, I had him priced beforehand, but Doug just had all that money and he just kind of swooped in and, you know, took, took those players away from me. And once, once I didn't get Ryu, I, I knew that it was going to be cheap pitching. And honestly, I, I was surprised to get Jesus Lazardo at 15 as my most expensive pitcher. I, I'm not really the biggest fan of his. Like, I think that price is fair, but he's just not somebody I've been targeting. And usually there's always one person who really likes Lazardo, really likes the upside, who goes a dollar or two more.
1: Your first uh, couple of picks, Mike Trout, I mentioned for 50, and then you spent 28 for Luis Robert. It looked like an on-base balancing play to me. Uh, Get Robert's low on-base percentage but good offensive stats and balance that with Mike Trout's also excellent offensive counting stats plus that 400-plus on-base percentage. Was that by design?
0: Well, yes and no. I mean, d- d- part of the Trout plan and, and part of getting Trout it, is the idea. You don't want to overdo it, and you want to be careful about it, but it does give you some wiggle room and on base. And, you know, once I got him, it, it made me realize that I could get Robert. R- Robert's somebody I'm I'm sort of high on. I don't want to say higher on than others because this is, truthfully, the first league I've gotten him. But I know he had a bad September last year, and I, I know there's some concern about his plate discipline and about his pitch recognition. I think the latter is more his, his potential challenge. Um, but It was more of the the steals play with Robert. I I really wanted to make sure to lock in steals. I had a feeling that Alberto Mondesi was going to go for more, which he did. Mondesi is even more of an on-base concern, in my opinion, than Robert. So it was more trying to lock in those steals early than anything else. I think Trout might run a little bit, but his days of running significantly, like he used to, seem to be gone.
1: You mentioned that you've set values for some of these guys. How do you set those values on the player stats that you're looking at?
0: Well, so what I usually do is I usually go in and and look, you know, I kind of use the model of going back and I look at the projections, but I also look back at the last three years and some people spin off the projections. What I actually like to do is look at what players have earned. Now, this was more challenging, you know, after 2020, of course, because it was a short season, but that gives me an idea. So if, if I see that a player, for example, and we'll talk about some of these in the boom bust segment later, if I see a player has never earned like over 30, I'm really reluctant, especially a young player. I'm really reluctant to pay that price because my thinking is, well, he could get there, but why would I, I pay over 30 for somebody who's never done it before? Uh, you know, it's not a science. You know, there, there's some players, particularly at the bottom of the pool where you have to kind of make some best guesses, uh, like someone like Josh Rojas, for example, uh, on the diamondbacks, you, you you really kind of have to throw up your hands because he has not been up for very long. It looks like he might have some playing time now or a path to it. You just kind of have to decide where you, you value him. But that's how it works for most players. I'm, I'm kind of looking at what they've earned in the past and, and using that to come up with a baseline.
1: I noticed that six of your first nine players that you drafted were outfielders. That that seems unusual. Why would you go...
0: Uh, well, most of it was because I liked the prices. Um, so... David Dahl was a bit of a surprise. I, I truthfully, he went for nine in Labor AL. I, I thought he would, I think I had him. I wasn't going to go higher than six. I, I thought he was just going to get bit up and it was early. So I didn't think I would wind up with him. Um, but when I got him for five, I was like, that's perfectly fine. Um, Teoscar Hernandez at 21 and, and Kyle Lewis at 18 were both, especially Hernandez, well below where I had them valued. So I was just kind of happy to get them. And at that point, you know, it's uh, tout has a swing position. You can put anybody in that position it was a matter of just liking the prices and liking the way the board looked so the other thing that happened that i didn't notice until after the fact and it just sort of you know led to this as well a lot of people were doing the opposite and they were putting uh, middle infielders or, or corners and i think it was middle infielders in particular into their like swing and utility positions like Rick Wolf and Glenn Colton i see they have Tim Anderson and Carlos Correa and i had i had the last bit on on Correa actually um, right behind them, so I was close on him. Uh, but there, there were a few teams like that where they they just wound up. You know, that's how they wound up spending. That's how they wound up structuring their teams. So that was part of it. I, with with money being shifted to you know middle infield or, or corner in those swing utility positions, I kind of just went where the value took me, as opposed to worrying about having too many outfielders.
1: I noticed that big shift of uh, money towards the stats that are going to be generated by second baseman and shortstops, and it actually ended up biting me in the behind towards the end of draft when I ended up with no shortstop to grab, really, in dollar days. Do you think that the players who were filling those utility and swingman slots with middle infielders were trying to create a shortage in the league, or was it perhaps uh, an attempt to... Make sure that you have injury coverage in case one of them happens to get hurt.
0: What you know, what my guess would be. So th- this is just a guess, but my guess would be is that. So if you look at say Wolf and Colton, for example, um, they got some outfielders and Michael Taylor or Cedric Mullins at a buck a piece. I don't think they're anything special, but I do think they're in, in and only they're going to produce value well over that. Whereas you know, as you point out, you know you got Jeter Downs and, and Michael Chavis. I actually like Chavis, but. You know, these are players who might not do anything. Like Jeter Downs, an example, he should be up at some point, but he just might not, you know, appear at all. And so, I, I think that's that's a large part of what it comes down to is people were filling in, thinking, well, you know what? It, it's a four outfielder league. I don't necessarily need four starting or four high end outfielders because these outfielders will will wind up producing. Now, some of it is was just the dynamics too. So, I Larry Schechter – you know, he he had a, a, he's written win, winning fantasy baseball, you know, a great player, but he had a lot of money left at the end. And so he just wound up, I, I think, filling in with who he thought were the best players on the board because he had to. Um, I got caught in a bidding war with him with Willie Adamas. I really wanted Adamas, but Larry had so much money that I could have kept bidding and bidding and maxed out, you know which I didn't want to do. So I just let him go for 14. Um, you know, he, he got a couple other players there, like JP Crawford and other players targeting. He kind of went about as high as I wanted to go. Um, Nico Goodrum, who, you know, I like a lot, but I don't necessarily see the the path to playing time went all the way to 10. So that was some of it too. There was just some money sitting there at the end and and people had to, you know, we know how it goes. Like you have to spend it or otherwise you're going to have, you know, you're just going to have a bunch of money left and you're probably not going to win.
1: You mentioned your pitching rotation uh, anchored by Jesus Lazardo. You also picked up some established veterans like Dallas Coikle. I think he's undervalued in almost every draft every year, but also Rich Hill and Ross Stripling, uh, you know, kind of border borderline guys, and a couple of youngsters, Casey Mize in Detroit and Tristan McKenzie, the uh, 72-pound guy in Cleveland. Uh, well, first of all, why the choice of Hill, Coycle, and Stripling as the seasoned veterans? Well, I wanted some
0: balance. Um, and you know, honestly, really it, at the end, so, so there were two phases here The the first phase, I was really just strictly going off play you and, and that starts with Lazardo and probably goes all the way down to Shohei Otani who, you know, to let your listeners know in, in tout wars, Otani split. So you're bidding on the pitcher versus the hitter. So if they think seven's, you know, an amazing price, I think it's a good price, but I'm only getting the pitcher. I'm not getting both, both of him. Um, but I like that price on Otani. There's a lot of upside for me there. So, with Hill, Stripling, and Mize, I was really just kind of looking at the upside. There were some stable pitchers or some like back end, fourth or fifth starters I could have taken. But I feel like those starters have a lot more risk. It's not that Hill and Stripling don't have risk, but I was looking at the upside with them. Now, the other piece of the strategy, too, with those last three, I took three relievers on reserve because the idea is I don't want to run eight starters out there every week. I feel like that's a recipe for a disaster, even though it can bolster your strikeouts. It also can really hurt your ratios. So the idea is to try to start the five or six best pitchers every week, probably six, and then run two you know, two of those three relievers on reserve up every week. So that was part of the strategy, too. So, you know, while Hill, you might think, oh, he's going to get hurt, you know, he might not pitch much, or, oh, Mize might start in the minors, which is looking likely right now, it doesn't matter. I don't need them on opening day. I just need them to get me quality innings when they
1: can. not Despite heavy spending at the start, you ended up only with two $1 players Uh, Minnesota catcher Ryan Jeffers I think was a steal and Detroit pitching prospect Casey Mize we mentioned Uh, walk us through how you chose Jeffers and how they hit their his stats ended up on your roster
0: that was honestly a surprise so yeah I was getting to the end and you know I needed catchers and middle infielders and you know, honestly, I, I think I not overspent exactly, but I, I spent a little more than I would have liked on Freddie Galvis and Jose Iglesias. You know, you talked about how you were squeezed out at middle infield. Uh, the choice I made there was like, well, you know, I, I want starters, I want plate appearances. I don't necessarily like their on base percentages, particularly Galvis, but they're going to give me stats, which is you know what you really need in a, a deep league like this. Um, so I was just kind of trying to knock off the best catchers on my board. Um, Max Stassi at four was one of them. I would have gone about up, I think maybe up to five for him. So I was kind of happy to get him. And then Jeffers and Tom Murphy were the next two. I just threw out Jeffers truthfully thinking he would go for four or five and I wouldn't get him. I was really surprised that nobody bid. So yeah, I I think even if, if, uh, Mitch Garver gets most of the playing time and, and Jeffers only carves out like 60 or 70 games, still feels like he's a value there at a
1: dollar. When you look back at your draft, Mike, uh, which player stats do you really like?
0: Well, I mentioned Teoscar. I, I'm really a, a fan of his. Yeah. I, I feel like he's. I, I, the average is going to drop. There's no doubt about it. And then there's some risk on him in the swing and miss. But the the power is legit. Like when he hits the ball, he hits the ball a long way. I feel like he's he's going to give me a, a lot of power and a, a pretty big broad base of power. And the other player I liked and I, I, he fell through because there's some talk of him possibly being demoted, uh, But is leodi Tavares? I think his defense is going to keep him in the lineup. Speed, as we know, is hard to come by, and he is fast. So uh, unless he's really awful um, and like so far below the line in terms of, of production, I think he will stay in the lineup, and at $9 will, will be a bargain.
1: You know, something I find, uh, having played in more mixed drafts lately than I have in uh, past years, is – as you get immersed in the mixed draft culture, for want of a better term, you start seeing names like Tavares and stuff going for these fairly high prices. And you also think to yourself, well, you know, this guy's going to hit the bottom of the order. There's all kinds of reasons in a mixed draft context where you might really devalue what you think his stats are going to be, but it's a whole different kettle of fish when you're in the only leagues and a 300 plate appearance guy is not devoid of value in in the same way that he would be in a 15 team mix where he's one of a million guys.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I think also what happens in a mix is people, especially you know, with some like TGFBI, they're playing that upside game and and they're willing to take the chance that even a fifteenth round or fourteenth round pick, if they don't work out, there's going to be a free agent out there. Whereas yeah, and only we know from experience, especially with the hitters, if somebody doesn't pan out or if somebody gets hurt, you might have to wait a long time before a viable like everyday player to you know as a replacement.
1: And in retrospect, when you look at your roster, who do you think probably isn't going to deliver the value you'd be hoping for?
0: Well, you know, they, I kind of mentioned them already, um, you know, and Freddie Galvez and Iglesias. I know they're only six and four, but I'm, I'm kind of a little disappointed they're on my roster. Um, I really like all the prices. The, the one player I, I recognize could be a big bust. You know, we talked about him at the beginning is Luis Robert. Um, I do like him a lot, but at that price, I don't think there's a lot of upside. And and yeah, there there's there is the possibility that he the issues that he had last year in September carry over, and that he really struggles. Uh, Long term, I like him a lot, um, but he's only 23, and you know we we kind of know that you know young players have a lot of variability in terms of what they might or might not do. Um, I do think he'll improve this year. I do think he'll run more than some of the projections say that he will. But yeah, there's, there's just a lot of variability in what he might do.
1: And before we leave the Tout American League, Mike, do you run your roster through some kind of set of projections to get an idea of where your team is likely to stand if you believe the projections? And, of course, caveats all over the place about the usefulness of projections in figuring out where you're going to end up. Uh, we know every year that the guy who thinks he's going to win finishes seventh. But uh, when you ran through, I, I don't want your whole uh, your whole situation, but w- w- how did your on-base percentage work out if you did projections?
0: Well, I'll be honest. I didn't. I haven't run it through yet. I usually do it after the the season. Um, What I do use Baseball Prospectus has a tool that spins off of our Pecota projections called the AX AX, and I often run it through there. What I find, which is interesting, I don't use the AX directly. I use my own bid limits, but because I'm you know so immersed in Baseball Prospectus, um, I'm usually finding myself you know if not winning like in the top three or four. And you're right, you know it's 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 a product just of you know, what we, you know, believe or what we think. I mean, I can tell you, you know, pretty, pretty quickly, you know, just, just looking at, at these players and, you know, kind of looking, you know, so Mike Trout obviously is, is quite the anchor, you know, with a projected 414 um, OPS or on base percentage, which, which truthfully might be a little low. Um, but after that, and you know, this, you know, could be a, you know, as I was talking about a potential problem, you know, next highest player I think kind of underrated in this regard too, is Luke Voit with a, a 347 on base. Um, but after that, it does fall off. And, you know, if there's something I'm kind of disappointed about, it's exactly that. Like you know, J.P. Crawford, I mentioned earlier, maybe I should have got a dollar more on. You know, even Nick Madrigal is maybe somebody because of his on base, I, I should have got a, a dollar more on. I'm guessing I probably project out to middle of the pack and on base. So I'm, I'm going to need some some players, you know, I, either some replacements or some players at the bottom who, you know, don't look good to kind of exceed what they're you know, supposed to do.
1: And I should have asked you this earlier, Mike, but it just popped into my head. The fact that Tout is a trading league, you're allowed to balance your roster post-draft in a way that you can't in a lot of like NFBC-style leagues or TGFBI, all of these uh, formats don't allow trading. How much does that factor in when you're building your roster, especially in draft, when you look at your situation, you say, there's no saves here, I've got these two possible guys and a couple of guys on reserve who are possible guys, but... How much does it factor into your thinking that you might be able to trade a surplus, especially if you've got a surplus of power, which everybody wants, to maybe acquire enough saves to sneak three or four points in the category that currently you might end up with just the one?
0: I try not to think about it too much just because I found that trades aren't necessarily easy to come by. Um, I often find in, in expert leagues, there's a couple of challenges. One is that because there's no keeper function, you don't have salaries and you don't have the this year for next year component. But I also find the other problem is a lot of times because it's a a public league and people pay attention to it. Nobody wants to feel like they made the the bad trade or, or they got ripped off. So what often I wind up seeing is some conservatism as far as that goes. So, I don't bank on the trades. Like I've made a couple of trades. I'm probably in the middle in, in terms of trading. I'm not the biggest trader, but there's some people who almost never trade or don't trade at all. I'm not that either. I'm right in the middle. But I don't really try to bank on the trades because I often find that they don't work out. What I'll be looking for with saves more you know, is fab and and kind of how that that works out um you know before we leave town we, we talked about this pre-show I, I just want to kind of mention this this anecdote since you mentioned save so you know we were talking earlier you know kind of about the days before the internet and what things were like and you know with 1996 or 1995 you know you get your copy of baseball weekly every week you barely had any access to news so in 2021 I'm sitting here in the reserves and, you know, I'd heard some things, you know, about Texas and the closer situation and our podcast producer on flags fly forever is, you know, a Texas guy. So I sent a direct message as the reserve draft is going on to one of the beat writers with the Rangers and asked him about the closing situation there, you know, and, he said, you know, they're beat writers. They want to say nice things about players. This was before his injury. But he said some pretty negative things about Jose Leclerc. He said it's wide open. You know, he mentioned, you know, Matt Bush is a possibility for saves. Ian Kenny was already gone. So I took Bush as a result in the last round of, of the reserve draft. So it's, you know, he might not work out. It's, it's the fourth pick in an A only reserve. But it is amazing now how we have this access to, to just pick off information if, if we have our sources and, you know, people we can talk to.
1: Kind of the whole premise of uh, Fantasyland, the book that the Wall Street Journal guy wrote?
0: Yeah, it was it Sam Walker, I think. Sam yeah, Walker, it, it, yeah. Except now the technology is like so intense. So he, he had access in part because He worked for the Journal. You know, he was a journalist. Like now on some level, if you, you can cultivate it, you know, the relationships, um, that'd be a whole separate show of how, you know, how to and how not to talk to beat writers on social media. Um, you can definitely get information that, you know, we didn't have access to a generation ago.
1: And all kinds of new sources coming up all the time. I mean, you can follow the beat writers on Twitter and you'll get a lot of pretty useful information I've found. The Athletic has a beat writer in every town and they're somewhat attuned to fantasy baseball and baseball prospectus and baseball HQ and fan graphs. There's lots of people writing about fantasy baseball. So there's all of these avenues that, boy, if you'd have told me 25 years ago when I got started in fantasy baseball that this was going to be available, I would have told you you were crazy.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, imagine, you know, there were probably diehards like trying to get newspapers from every town during the season. But I, I you know, I can't even imagine trying to do that.
1: Well, when I was starting out, I worked at a newspaper, and during our drafts, we held the drafts at the newspaper cafeteria, and I'd excuse myself every so often, run down to the newsroom, sign on to my computer, and then start scanning the wires looking for baseball stories because it was right at the end of spring training. You really had to worry a lot about guys getting sent down who didn't make the club and... and stroke them off your list because you didn't want to find that out on Monday after the draft and the season starts and two of your guys are in the minors and you're sitting there with uh, the basically dead spots. Uh, so I, I had the information advantage there for a couple of years, but uh, information is one of those things, isn't it, Mike, where there's no way to maintain that information advantage in an open sort of communications society like we have.
0: Yeah, it's it's virtually impossible. Something interesting that I've noticed is that um, you know, with with some newspapers paring down their coverage and with The Athletic being behind a paywall and with MLB.com I, cutting back on some of their reporting coverage, I, it, the pendulum is swinging a little bit the other way where it, the information used to just be out there. It used to be ubiquitous. I'm finding that you have to dig again or pay the money for The Athletic. I, I don't work for them, by the way. I'm not. I have no financial stake in this endorsement. Um, but that, that's the idea yeah you have to kind of dig a little bit more again because some of the information out there it's there but it's not necessarily the best or the most current because you know newsrooms are, are cutting corners a little bit
1: and i'd also advise anybody looking especially on the free sites that the information you get oftentimes is very speculative in nature it isn't researched it isn't reported i mean some of it's aggregated for the you know they go behind the paywall, they take snippets out of somebody else's work, and then they report it as their own. But a lot of it's just speculation, and you got to be very careful about that.
0: Yeah. And, and really, sometimes it almost seems like something that, you know, I've seen some of these like roster projections for opening day where, you know, the information's wrong or, or it's just bad information. Like I saw one where a player was projected to make the lineup. It's like, oh, he's hurt. Like, and I know he's hurt. And like, how does this reporter not know this? But again, it kind of goes back to what I'm saying. I, I think some of this, like you're saying, is just not necessarily, if, if you're not paying somebody, if you're you know, paying somebody almost nothing, I'm not blaming the reporter. I'm blaming the company. You kind of get what you you pay for.
1: Exactly right. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. And Mike, you mentioned earlier this month you were in the Labor National League-only auction or salary cap draft, as we now call it confusingly. In the article you wrote at Baseball Prospectus about your draft, you said you never planned to go Stars and Scrubs, but that's what happened in Labor NL. Uh, How did it happen?
0: Well, it, it happened. So, you know, right out of the shoot, the first three big name players went at about the price I thought they would. Trey Turner went for 40. Uh, Ronald Cunha went for 41. Fernando Tatis Jr. went for 41. Not to me. So I thought, OK, this this is probably just going to go this way and I'm, I'm going to not, you know, get any of these high priced players. Uh, but the next player off the board was Mookie Betts for 40, who I did get. And that was about as high as I'd go. Um, so then Toward the end of the round, Jacob Degrom went for forty, and he was someone I was targeting. So I thought I'd have one, you know, superstar pitcher and one superstar hitter, and, and then kind of fill in behind them. But right after Degrom was Walker Buehler, who's who's someone else I liked, and and he stopped it at twenty-seven. Um, so right out of the shoot, I had three players for over a hundred, and you know the, the choice you have here is you can either try to to kind of wait and be patient, and and then grab some players later. But i I keep I keep a plus minus which is I keep track of where the room is and it's my projected bid versus you know what the room is spending and at the point that Bueller came out, I had that as a plus 10 not not for me but for for the entire room and that means there was ten dollars the players being bid on were ten dollars undervalued in, in my opinion. That number just kept going up. So so that number, you know, again by my values versus what was happening, went as high as a plus sixty-six with Craig Kimbrell, the 79th player off the board. Um, so teams just weren't spending. So rather than wait and, and be patient. I, I decided just to spend and, and take what the room was giving me because I didn't want to be in a position later where I was overspending on players, you know, because there were a number of people, including your colleague, again, most notably Doug, Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ, who, who weren't spending their money and were just sitting on a pile of cash.
1: That can be dangerous though, if you're doing it, because the, the the fact that there's all this extra money floating around in the system is the basically is what inflation is. And usually it ends up meaning that you're going to have to pay even more for less talent down the road. When you were thinking about that, was that part of your thinking that uh, you might as well spend it while it's cheap?
0: Pretty much. Yeah. The, the thinking there is... is- so what I've seen happen before in these situations is the correction happens earlier. Um, I, I built a Stars and Scrubs team in Labor Ale. I think it was three years ago, and I bought three offensive players right right off the bat, like who were thirty five and over. And what happened there is that the the market corrected really quickly. And as a result, you know, I got a player here, a player there, but they were all like you know between like ten and fifteen dollars. They weren't that expensive. Here it just didn't correct. So that that's what it was. Like I I just looked at this and. And there was some there were some bidding wars later that I, I just thought were ugly because people had to spend their money. And as I said before in tout ale, if you don't do it, you you just wind up with with a bunch of cash or imaginary cash in your pocket. So you you hit the nail on the head. That was exactly why I, I went with this approach and just kept, you know, doing it and doing it to the end. Uh, another piece of this is so in my first tout, you know, salary cap draft in 2010, uh, similar situation, bought a lot of stars. Uh, I, I backed off, and I, I had like 40 or $50 left to spend, and I was kind of a coward, and and I didn't you know spend that money because so I'm like, oh, I want to have some balance. And I wound up buying a, a lot of terrible pitchers as a result. Like I had a great offense that year, but I, I lost because – or I finished third, but I didn't win because – I just didn't push it all the way to the hilt. I think the player I missed out on was was Ubaldo Jimenez. Like the one or two years he was like really great, and had I you know pushed on him, I would have had a pretty good you know basis of a staff. And the one dollar pitchers that I missed out on wouldn't have been much different than the ones that I spent like anywhere from three to seven on. So that that's a large part of why I, I took this approach.
1: One of the reasons I think that this goes on is the use of the term inflation, I think might be a little misleading when we think about it in big economic terms, like the inflation in the general economy of Canada or the United States or, or the world, we think of it as there's too much money chasing too few goods, but the, but the quantity of goods is infinite. And in a system like we're talking about in a fantasy baseball auction, the supply of goods is really limited. Those stats that are available to buy, there's not 40 Mike Trout level stat providers. There's one and his price is what it is. And if you wait and wait and wait and hold on to your money thinking you're going to somehow get a bargain later on, especially if there's more than one of you doing it, I think what you end up doing as you describe, what you risk ending up doing is spending $17 to get a $10 player.
0: Yeah, and, and you're you're kind of right about inflation and, and the concept, and and it being a closed market versus an open market. We all have two hundred and sixty to spend. Um, you know, generally speaking, in most of these leagues, there's X number of teams, so there's thirty-one twenty in a twelve-team league, and I think that's where people get stuck, and, and people get stuck with the idea. Well, I want to bargains, I want to have bargains and at the beginning, especially I want to bargains. And it's like, well, we can't all have bargains, so you know, as a result, it, it's a matter of you you have to make a decision on where the bargains are. And you know to kind of go back to, to the, your first question, the reason I generally don't plan to go stars and scrubs, I often find the opposite happens. I often find at the beginning when the table's flush with cash that everybody spends and everybody's aggressive. And I wind up with kind of that approach that a Doug Dennis or a Todd Zola of Masters Ball takes where – I don't spend like about like probably over 25 or 26 on any one player because I feel at the beginning, everything's too expensive. So I wait and I wait because eventually the, when everybody's spending a lot, the, the, the bargains are going to come. But once in a while, something happens like labor NL where everybody's not spending. I know the opposite's is going to happen where the, the bargains aren't going to come. And, or the bargains are there at the beginning, which is they're not going to come later. So to your point, it, it's a matter of knowing that, that it's a, a closed system and not this open system where, oh, inflation, there's still inflation, there's still inflation, there's still inflation. Like that. That's not how it works.
1: Right. I mean, theoretically, if you waited and waited and waited and didn't spend anything, you could get all the 23 last players for a dollar each and, and have $237 left but you can't spend it on anything. So it's worthless. And, and I think that's something again, that people need to take into account when they're trying to figure out how to respond to an inflated environment, whether it's because of keepers in a keeper league or whether it's because of underbidding in a, in a auction league, in a redraft situation, like you described. And I think the challenge to people who are drafting in the, in the auction setting is you got to, be attuned to where that sweet spot is going to be. And part of that is really not calculable because it depends on what everybody else is thinking.
0: That's why I like to come up with my bid limits where I have all of that in, in the first place. And you know, obviously everyone agrees with me. So you know, someone might've looked at was happening at labor and gone, no, it's fine. Or I think it's even, I don't see bargains coming, but what matters is what you think. So you know, if you have that structure set up, you kind of know how it's going to go, and and you're sort of planning, as opposed to you know just having a broad structure. You know, I've seen, I've often seen people say, "Well, I don't mind if I you know overspend on somebody by by five dollars," and it's like, why why would you think that? Like, you, you you and I might disagree, or you know I might disagree with somebody on on what a player is worth, so we might have a five dollar difference of opinion, which is different. But like why would you say, well, I think this player is worth 15 and I'd spend twenty? Like you wouldn't do that in any other arena, right? Like you wouldn't go to the, the grocery store and say, Well, you know what, I, I know you're selling this, you know, box of spaghetti for a dollar fifty, but here's six dollars. Like whatever. I don't <laughs> I don't care. Like it, it's and that that's part of this game, right? Like part of the game is evaluating players, but part of this game is trying to evaluate what they're worth in in this context.
1: At the same time, though, Mike, you also commented in your Baseball Prospectus article about the unfeasibility of a highly structured draft budget. And uh, you said something to the effect of doing a rigid budget and sticking rigidly to your limits ignores the reality that a salary cap draft is governed by market forces. And I think that brings us back to this idea of you have to be able to go with the flow, understand the room, understand the other people's rosters. All of that kind of stuff goes into pricing decisions because. As you said, you might think Mookie Betts is worth 40 bucks, and if you are absolutely rigid on it, and there are players who are very successful doing it this way, but if somebody else happens to think that he's worth 41 whether it's because they're willing to go over their budget or their budget actually thinks he's worth 41 then you're not going to end up with Mookie Betts, and that same principle applies to every player in the draft. You could just constantly be outbid for everybody. Because somebody somewhere thinks he's worth more than you do.
0: Yeah. And in that example, and and this ties back to what I I said, where typically I'm not the person spending on the Mookie Betzes of the world. What winds up happening is I like to make those decisions on the twenty to twenty-five dollar players where I go like a dollar or two over on one or maybe two of them. And it's for the reason you just said before. I don't want to leave, you know, I want to have a bunch of money on the table. I don't want to just be sitting there like, oh, you know, I I've got ten dollars left. That was a waste. So that's the decision point to me. Like those players about in the twenty twenty five dollar range or so, where I might go a dollar or two over. Where I have them priced just to make sure I spend my money. I also know in those situations where everybody's overspending on the top players, that the bargains are going to come later, and I'm going to get them. You know, even if I overspend on a couple players in, in that like twenty to twenty five dollar
1: range. You mentioned that you spent more than a hundred on your first three players' bets: Degrom and Bueller. I think hundred and seven altogether. And then, with 67 on just two starters stats, you resolved to limit all your other pitching slots to 10 or less. And you called that painful to say the least. What was the source of the pain?
0: Well, the source of the pain was so. So the thing about that is, labor tends to push down pitching prices, and there were just some some pitchers. You know, Charlie Morton was was the one I mentioned um, to Steve Garner when he asked for the recap of best bargain. But there were just a few pitchers like that in the ten to fourteen range, where um, Ian Anderson at thirteen was another one. I'm not going to rattle all these off, but there, there were just a lot of pitchers I felt who went like three or four dollars below where I would have gotten them. So it's a question of if I could have gotten Morton and another pitcher for say 14 as opposed to Bueller, yes, Bueller's the better pitcher, but I, I feel like I would have had more, you know, volume, more strikeouts. Um, the pitchers, the the many dollar pitchers that I have at the bottom, I don't need all of them to work out, I only like maybe two of them or three of them to work out. I have a lot of pitchers on reserve, but it, it's still rough to see those bargains come through when you spend early. That That's often the problem. I, I find that labor NL, that the spending fluctuates more wildly than it does in tout NL or AL, and and that's some of it. The, the, those auctions are, are tighter. I, I find the jumps in both directions in labor NL are, are are all over the place. And that's where the pain was for me.
1: And that raises an interesting point about pairing. There used to be a theory in fantasy baseball auctioning that uh, you need to think of your players in groups, uh, whether pairs or in groups of three. And I was thinking about that when I looked at uh, your article and I looked at your National League labor roster and it was this, you get Jacob deGrom for 40, which is a in an isolated sort of thought is perfectly reasonable. But at some point, you're going to have to offset that with, with much lesser pitchers. And if we assume that you spend 40 for him and then $1 each for two other pitchers, the question is, could you have done better spending $14 each on three pitchers? And, uh, and I think that's the balance that we always have to try to keep in the back of our heads, whether, whether it works out that way, positively or negatively.
0: Yeah, so I think there's a couple things about that. That that is true that those fourteen dollar pitchers, you know, do give you more balance. The the other side of that though, there's no pitcher who can potentially do what Jacob Degrom is going to do uh, in terms of like being your your base. Now I know some of the theory in the NL and why some folks don't want to pay forty for him. Um, I know Gray Ra- that, um, Albright of raspball is is kind of very derisive of paying forty for a Degrom, particularly in the NL um rasball has him projected at 34 so their mentality is like well you're overpaying yes he's a great pitcher but you're overpaying for this baseline but the thing is is that that's assuming everybody matches or meets their projections which we know they're not going to do like de is most likely to meet his projection and there's this very slim outside chance because he is such a great pitcher he could break it now the other side of this is that the dollar pitchers some of them are going to stink but some of them are actually going to work out. They're not going to work out to you know be like 15, 20 pitchers. But with DeGrom and Toe, they don't have to. Like they, they can each earn, like say, eight to ten. And the third part of it is I'm not going to have all those dollar pitchers all year. I'm going to be cycling through. I'm going to be using Fab. I'm going to use those pitchers on my reserve list to try to maximize matchups. So it, it's just a it's a work in progress. And I, I think that's often where we get stuck with this. We talked earlier about how this is a closed you know, setting in terms of the salary cap f prices and the limits, but it is an open setting once the season starts. And the roster we start out with isn't the one that we're walking away with.
1: You consoled yourself in your article with the thought that many of these mid-range bargain pitchers that you discussed were only bargains because you said many of their projected stats values were to you just flat out wrong. How confident are you that they're that wrong? Um.
0: Well, I, I mean, you never know, so I, I guess I'm not really confident. I'm kind of going more off of the historical, his, kind of more of the historical valuations, and it, it's not an individual argument. It's an argument across the group. So historically speaking, pitchers in the 13 to 19 range in particular as a group tend to tend to lose. It doesn't mean they all lose. So some of those pitchers will work out, but more often than not, there's a greater than 50% chance that you're going to take a loss on one of these pitchers. So uh, we don't know who they are. We never know who they are until the season plays out that that's part of the reason we play the game. I mean, if we knew we, we wouldn't play fantasy baseball, we would just, you know, go bet on retrospective stats once a year, and that would be the end of it. But as a group, you know, in the aggregate, more often than not, the, these pitchers fail, and, and that's kind of how it works. It, it works that when you when you spend like thirteen or or nineteen on a pitcher, or any pitcher in that range, there's more volatility, historically speaking, than the pitchers at the top of the food chain. The pitchers at the fo- top of the food chain, when they fail. First of all, they bring back something like they'll they'll earn something. But then second of all, if they completely fail, it's because of injury. The, the pitchers in the middle, sometimes when they're bad, they're, they're just bad and they can really torpedo your team just as much as a one dollar pitcher can. That, that's kind of where, what I was talking about there.
1: Yeah, and something everybody uh, needs to keep in mind is that pitching with those two ratio categories, a guy can actually hurt your team actively, unlike, uh, I mean, of course a batter can hurt you in on-base percentage, but he has four other categories to make it up that are counting stats just going in one direction, which is up, and I think that's a factor too. Uh, You racked up the stats of four more premium hitters after having – spent all that money at the start, uh, JT Real Muto, Nolan Arenado, Keston Hura, Charlie Blackman, these are premium guys, uh, about $22 on average a piece. Uh, again, was this just a market response to what was going on at the table, or did you have uh, targets on these guys?
0: Uh, it was mostly market, although I, I do like Hura more than most. I, I know people are down on him. They're, they're pointing to his high strikeout rate last year and, and so far in spring training, um, but I really believe in him. Uh, but but I would say for the rest of them, particularly Arenado and Real Muto, it was mostly market. I I think people are a little wary of Real Muto's thumb injury, but he's supposed to be fine. He's supposed to be ready for opening day. And he really gives you so much volume behind the plate compared to any other catcher, and particularly in an only that really matters. Um, some people are going to be trotting out catchers with 100, 150 plate appearances. Uh, that, that's a big advantage having him in that slot over someone who's barely going to play. Um, and then Blackman was a... I'm not exactly a target, but a bit of a target because of the batting average. Uh, I, I feel like the some of the hitters I have, particularly Yura, might be a risk there. So I wanted someone who was going to be an average anchor. Like before in town, we were talking about on-base um, labor's a batting average league. It's not quite as, you know, Blackman isn't Mike Trout in terms of on-base. He's not that great. But historically speaking, he's been strong in the category. And even if he fades in other categories, which I think he will given his age, I still think he's a 300 hitter.
1: You noted that after you had got those four guys, you only had $64 left for 16 slots. That's four per slot, which isn't a lot. And your response, or a lot of people's response at that point, would be to hold back and stop spending because you don't want to be stuck in dollar days at the end with too many $1 slots. You didn't go that route. You uh, instead went on to keep bidding. You went 46 on three more hitters, a total of 46 on James McCann, Andrew McCutcheon, who's a terrific player, and Will Myers. Was that, again, part of the plan, or were you reacting spur of the moment? How did that come about?
0: It was mostly spur of the moment. So the only player that I I kind of started considering maybe stopping on was Will Myers. Um, So I got McCann, I got McCutcheon. Uh, I actually let Mike Estremski go at a price I kind of liked. And it was right after that, that Myers came up and and that's where I got to the moment. It's like, well, if these players are all going to keep going at these favorable prices, you know, as I said before, at some point that's going to stop and I don't want to find myself, you know, seeing the the pendulum swing the other way so you know with myers i said you know the heck with it i i'm you know i I think i was a little more vulgar than that in my head but (laughs) i said the heck with it you know i'm just going to take myers here i'm not going to worry too much um you know about you know how positions slot out or how money slots out and i'm going to hope and you know there's a lot of one dollar players we'll get into that later i'm going to hope there's enough there at the end where I can kind of fill in and, and get some you know decent decent options at the end. I was more worried about the offense than the pitching. You know, as I said before, pitching tends to work out. There's a lot of differences of opinion. I figured I'd be able to fill in with some pitchers I liked better than everybody else. Uh, you know, hitting is where I, I was more worried that it might be a little little rough there at the end.
1: That left you with eighteen dollars for thirteen slots, six hitters, seven pitchers. Again, you're doing this kind of all on the fly. How did you plan for that part of the draft?
0: Well, I mean, it's hard to make a plan when you have that little money and people have so much money. Uh, what I was hoping, and it didn't work out this way, I was hoping to you know, spend my money on the hitters and, and go $1 pitchers. Uh, it, it just didn't work out, like I said, because so many people had money, You know, so many people still needed hitting slots. It just made it really difficult. And, you know, looking here, you know, I've got a spreadsheet with with all the, the prices. You know, for one, I had to wait a long time. Um, for another, the really cheap hitters, the first one was like Manny Pena, and I already had two catchers. I didn't really like him anyway, but, you know, I wasn't going to put, you know, <laughs> jam my team with three catchers just because, you know, one was a bargain or not. So it, it was really, you know, a long, long time before a non-catcher came up at a, a price that was Okay. Um, I tried a couple times. Like, I, I threw out Garrett Cooper for a dollar, thinking, you know, I, I kind of like Garrett Cooper. He'd be okay at a dollar. Uh, he went for three. Uh, I'm not going to run through every one of these, but that's essentially what happened with the hitters that I, I tried to put out there. Like, each hitter I put out there for a buck or two just kept going. So eventually I went the other way. I, I wound up spending a little bit of money on a couple pitchers that I liked. Uh, I wound up with a closer. You know, I know he's Colorado's closer for $4, but. I I diverted from the plan just because I was able to get some players in the pitching side I liked
1: and, you know, just went that way. Well, you did get Daniel Bard, uh, Sean Doolittle, who might find his way into a saves picture sooner or later, but you were pretty candid in your article, Mike, about assessing the real shortfall of this approach, which is that so many hitter slots in the low bid end game means you're bound to come up with a shortage of plate appearances. And we talked about that earlier with regard to Tout Wars, where really plate appearances are the gold that you're trying to accumulate. What has to happen for your team to succeed to offset the deficit of playing time that this structure has imposed?
0: Well, so there's three things that I can think of off the top of my head. The, The first one is, you know, some of the low end players have to work out. So in an only league in an NL only with no DH, the average team, you know, should have 10 starters, Um, So what I need is I need three of my cheap players to work out. Um, So Isan Diaz, who I'm hoping makes the team, but honestly has had a very poor spring. Um, Even if he's sent down by the Marlins, I'm hoping he comes back quickly. Um, Luis Urias. So I I got a little lucky. Um, Travis Shaw was actually taken um, in the salary cap draft portion uh, for $3.00 by um, Greg Ambrosius and Sean Childs. Uh, But it was an illegal move because labor has a 10-game requirement and J.D. Davis was not eligible um, where they thought he was eligible. So Shaw had to be dropped right after um, or right before the reserve portion. I had the second pick overall, so I just grabbed Shaw because I already had Luis Urias. I think I have a starter there between one of the two of them. And then the third player was Josh Rojas. So Josh Rojas, when I took him, I thought, oh, you know, a little speed. You know, he maybe makes the team. It's looking more and more like Josh Rojas is not only going to make the team, but he's going to start and and play toward the top of the lineup. So that's the kind of stuff I was looking for. Um, The third piece is in season. You know, in season, you need to get some breaks. You need to be aggressive on the wire. I think one drawback about the strategy, some people like only because if they have a balanced team, they can just kind of set it and forget it. I'm not really going to be able to do that. I'm going to have to really like plug away, be aggressive, you know, make moves all year to, to make sure that I get the players that, you know, I need to get so that, you know, I go from like 10 starters, hopefully to like 11 or
1: 12. And you mentioned a couple of those reserve lists, but that was part of backstopping your strategy. What else did you do in reserve to try to balance things?
0: Well, the biggest thing was the pitchers. So, um, labor—the only labor leagues have a rule where you. you can, so, in taut wars, you can reserve anybody at any time. You only have four reserve slots, but you can put anyone on reserve. You know, so if you have a pitcher who stinks that you don't like, or if you have a hitter who's slumping, you can reserve him. In labor, you can only reserve the players, the active major leaguers who you take in the reserve round. So, on my team, for example, um, Chad Cool. Um, if Chad Cool stinks, if I don't like him, if I decide I'm I'm sick of Chad Cool. And he's healthy. I have to cut him or keep him. That's it. Um, So I took four pitchers on reserve, uh, Jake Arrieta, Kyle Freeland, John Lester, Antonio Senzatella, who I can cycle in or out based on the matchup. So that was part of the plan, recognizing I had so so many one dollar pitchers, recognizing they're not all going to work out. Um, I took a lot of pitchers that I can just cycle in and out all year based on matchups like Kyle Freeland and Anthony, Antonio Sensatella. I'm going to be using them on the road pretty much. You know, they're, they're Colorado pitchers. I don't plan to use them at home. But having that volume, I feel, is going to, going to work to my advantage on reserve, particularly because with so many of these pitchers on reserve, it, it's just going to be very difficult to, for other teams to, to kind of find those starters.
1: But because you can't reserve the pitcher in your active lineup, the first time you want to cycle one of those reserve pitchers in, you're going to have to drop a guy? Is that just part of the cost of doing business?
0: That's part of the cost of doing business. I would imagine with these one dollar pitchers and with David Peterson at two, at least two of these pitchers. I'm just assuming are not at least are not going to work out and, and be dropped. And, and yeah, that that's that's part of the stars and stripes strategy. Is we we know not all these pitchers are going to work out. But it goes back to what I said before, which is funny. We we also know that some pitchers, you know, in in the five to ten dollar range aren't going to work out too. I, I think some of the illusion of pitching is we often think that a you know five dollar pitcher is better than a one dollar pitcher. I mean, he's wanted more than a $1 pitcher, but how much more confidence do we really have in, in one of those pitchers over the
1: other? And in labor, when you fab pitchers, do they, or players in general, can they bounce back and forth from active to reserve, or, or is it just those guys that you picked up in the actual draft part?
0: it's the same thing. You can only bounce guys back and forth on reserve. Now you can trade those reserve rights. So, you know, sometimes what'll often happen is somebody has a reserve crunch, uh, because if someone gets sent to the miners, you can also reserve them. So someone will advertise, Hey, I've got an extra reserve player. I've got a $0 player that I'm, I'm going to, you know, just throw away or release. Um, so there is that aspect of it, but no, once you fab somebody, you're, you're kind of stuck. So, you do have to be careful. Like you can't just like fab people willy nilly. You do want to try to strategically add players to your team. Um, But again, the hope is that you find, you know, all you need to do is hit like two or three times. You know, you hope to find that pitcher that you can actually, you know, keep and, and hang on to.
1: Tout Wars has an injured list that's separate from the reserve. If a guy goes on the injured list in major league baseball, you can just take him off your active roster, put him on IL and it doesn't cost you a reserve spot. How does labor handle that?
0: Labor's the same way, unlimited IL. So it, it's just the the major leaguers that are kind of stuck in this, you know, keep or drop. So you you can, you know, anytime somebody's hurt, you can, you know, move them to the the IL freely.
1: You're listening to baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Mike Gianella. From Baseball Prospectus and Flags Fly Forever, a terrific podcast. Mike, uh, let's do the boons and bane's. These are guys you think are going to help or hurt their fantasy rosters this season. Uh, let's start with the boons, guys. You think will provide added value in the coming season? Who's a hitter in the American League that you think is a boon?
0: Well, um, you know, I have him on a couple teams. I mentioned him before, but Teoscar Hernandez. I, I'm really excited about him. Um, I I know that Hernandez, you know, I I understand the risk. Uh, There's some downside. Uh, There's a lot of swing and miss. I'd kind of counter with the fact that he's he's done okay with that this spring. Um, But also, I don't think a 30% strikeout rate is fatal the way it would have been um, a generation ago. Um, yes, the average is going to drop, but I don't expect him to hit 230 again. I think he's going to kind of balance out between the 290 hit last um, last year in the short season and the 230 hit in 2019. I'm guessing about 250, 255. Uh, with all the power he can potentially provide, most of the projection systems have him at about 35 home runs. He also runs a little bit. I think he should steal like you know maybe eight to ten bases. Uh, there's just a lot of value there. So Tasker Hernandez, I, I think he's he's somebody I'd like to have, and I do have in a lot of my leagues.
1: A little bit of added risk from the fact that Toronto just has this huge number of pretty good outfielders and and guys that can DH and that kind of thing. So there may be a bit of a playing time crunch as that settles out. And uh, I would be worried. I have Teoscar Hernandez as well. Uh, But my concern is that anybody who's in that mix of players in Toronto who has a little slump could find himself sitting for quite a while because it's not like they lack for alternatives.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I've heard some trade rumors too, although I think the problem is, is that Randall Gritchick is the player they want to trade, and I, I believe he's tied to a pretty pretty big contract.
1: He is, yeah. It's a, it's a really big contract that they signed a couple of years ago. So I, I believe they might be stuck with him. But if you think... It might even be beneficial if Hernandez were the guy that they chose because he's got value to other teams by virtue of the fact he's still in a, on a starter-out level contract, so he's a little bit away from arbitration and free agency, and he can hit, and he can actually uh, play pretty well. He's not a great outfielder, but he plays, and if he were to get traded somewhere where they actually want him, now all of a sudden, you're, instead of looking at you know 450 plate appearances, you might be looking at 600.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think the talent there will eventually win. I mean, the other piece of this, too, is that injuries and, and tend to kind of always solve for these things. Like, teams, when they have an excess, it always seems like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And I, I, I think it'll solve for itself. I mean, to your point, you're right. If, if somebody slumps, and it could be a task, or he could, he could lose the playing time. We, we just don't know.
1: Who's a hitter in the National League, you think, could be a boon?
0: Uh, let's see. So for National League, uh, another player that we I think we talked about briefly, um, James McCann of the Mets. Um, so I feel like McCann is being valued for what he's done in the past. And I I really like him. I, I think the hitting is legitimate. I don't think the Mets would have signed him to you know a big contract, you know, for at least in terms of the years, if they didn't think he would hit. And, you know, he's been really productive going back and on offense, going back to twenty nineteen. Um, I'd be a little wary of him in a non-base league, uh, but if you're in a, in a batting average league, I, I think the power is going to be there. And I think the projections on him, you know, particularly for the power, a little light. I'm seeing like 15 home runs. Uh, 20 home runs wouldn't surprise me. and also wouldn't surprise me if the batting average is more like a 260 um, as opposed to the 240 or so I'm, I'm seeing him projected for. So James McCann, I feel like he's a little bit undervalued. I know people are, are afraid of catch- or Some people are afraid of catchers. Um, I, I like the volume, I think, that you're going to get from him.
1: Over to the mound and back to the American League. Who's a pitcher who could be a boon?
0: Well, we talked about him before too, but uh Dallas Keuchel, Um, So there's always some reluctance to to grab like low strikeout pitchers, and he certainly is. But you know, boy, boy, does Keuchel just know how to pitch? Like I, you know, he's not going to put up the one nine nine he he put up last year, but he he should be counted on. I'd say for like about a three five three seven five, which is a pretty good you know number in this day and age. Really helped out by Yasmani Grandal's framing as well. On a really good team, you you can't necessarily count on wins, but it it wouldn't surprise me if Keuchel like walked away this year with with a bunch of wins. So uh, Dallas Keuchel is is my pick here.
1: Nice solid bullpen in Chicago too, which is going to help. And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher?
0: Boy, this is one where I I usually try to go for value here based on price, but I'm going on talent, Um, and it's Ian Anderson in Atlanta. I really love Anderson. So Anderson as a prospect was somebody, there were some questions about his command. There were some questions about his ability to mix in a third pitch. Um, the command was a little shaky last year, but he really saw for the third pitch. And, you know, last season and, you know, so far in, in spring training, and it was just spring training, just a really hard pitcher to hit, really hard pitcher to, to square up on. Um, the statcast cast metrics are really favorable in terms of, you know, hitters just not being able to barrel up on him. I know it's a small sample, but regardless of, of what happens with him, unless the walks really go sideways, um, he, he's just going to be a really reliable, really difficult pitcher to hit. Obviously, you're not going to put up, you know, like a, a one nine five or a sub two like he put up in the majors. But it wouldn't surprise me to see him like be a nearly pitcher. And, you know, he's one of those pitchers. I, I don't know if I mentioned before or not. He's one of those pitchers I regret not getting in labor based on my my strategy.
1: Mike Gianella's Boons, Teoscar Hernandez, James McCann, Dallas Koikel, and Ian Anderson. And boy, that's an interesting set of boons. A lot of controversial characters. Uh, you listen to enough pods as I listen to a lot of fantasy baseball podcasts. And these are guys whose names come up, especially Hernandez and Anderson, that generate a lot of disagreements, so they're interesting players. Let's move on to the Baines. These are guys you think have a good chance of disappointing their fantasy managers this season. Again, we'll start back in the AL. Who's a hitter who could be a Bain?
0: so this is just based on price because i really like the player um but bo bichette another toronto blue Jays. so great player i i, I see a lot to like long term but you know i i see his price you know he he went in the in the 30s and in, in both labor and and tout in the only leagues um he's going in the second round in drafts it's just really puzzling to me because the upside looks like ozzy Albies, and you know Albies is going like around round and a half later and i also like Albies. and the thing I don't get to, you know, he's only played 75 games. He still hasn't had a full stretch. And both in 2019 and 2020, Bichette had this like this burst of statistics. And then he kind of struggled a little bit longer. I'd really like to see a full season out of him. And we just don't have that yet. I, again, great player in the long term and great real life player. You know, I'm not knocking him from that perspective. His defense should be pretty good too. I, I just think for the price, there, there are a lot of shortstops I'd rather have. And that's the other piece too. It's a shortstop is a deep position. That there's players like uh, Xander Bogarts and, and Corey Seager going later who I'd rather have, like, let alone at the price. So a little puzzling to me. You know, I think people are paying for upside in redraft, which doesn't make sense. Like in dynasty or keepers, sure, pay the extra price. But in a one-year league, there's players I'd rather have at the same position who are going cheaper.
1: I think that's a really astute analysis. And one extra reason that I'll throw in there is – last year he started as you said gangbusters and then he fell off and one of the reasons he fell off was he hurt his knee and he didn't run at all after he came back from that injury or he ran very sporadically and not very successfully and I'm not going to spend $30 or a second round pick on Bo Bichette until I see that he's recovered at, at that price the, the risk to me is just too high who's a National League bane hitter for you?
0: So someone here in Philadelphia, um, Alec Bohm, and and again, this is really about price. So um, Bohm, great prospect, uh, looks great if you've ever seen him play um, with the bat. But but a lot of his swing, a lot of his swing last year was line drive. Like so, he he doesn't really have an over the fence swing, and maybe that'll change. You know, we know a lot of his work on launch angle. But he seems to me like somebody who's going to spray the ball or, or hit some lasers, like, you know, in the gaps or two outfielders more than over the fence, at least based on how he's hitting right now. So a lot of what people are counting on with him is batting average. You know, he had a 410 Babip last year, and I, I just don't necessarily see that happening for him. Again, yeah, he could hit 280 with 20 home runs and and that's really good. But I, I feel like he's being priced at a level where I I Look at someone like Brian Anderson of the Marlins, for example, who Boehm might be a little better than him. And you know, I could just go get Anderson. I could just go get Turner. Um, other thing about Boehm is that if you have seen him play. His defense is rough. Um, I don't think that means that the Phillies are going to bench him for you know bad defense. I do think he might sit occasionally if they use a ground baller, and I do think he might lose some at-bats late in games for for defense if the Phillies are in the lead. So just just something to keep in mind, that the projections on him and playing time might be a little bit robust for that reason. So again, similar to Bichette, I, I love Boehm in the long term, and I, I hope he works out. He's an exciting player. Just feel like people are reaching on him right now.
1: Back to the mound and back to the American League. Who's a bane pitcher for you in the American League?
0: Uh, Tyler Glassnell, Uh and this really just comes down to volume with him. So, really talented pitcher. I love to watch him pitch. It just you know, so exciting when he has everything working for him. He's never pitched more than you know 111 and two thirds innings in, in a major league season, and. I I just don't really know what to expect. I see the projections range, you know, from 134 to 163. I the 134 even seems ambitious to me based on his history. Maybe he does not but but at the price he's going for, you know, I think he went in like the mid to upper 20s in in Touted AL. There's just a lot of pitchers I'd rather have where I know I'm going to get that volume. I know it might matter less this year because we don't expect as many pitchers to you know pitch 108 innings, let alone 200. But with Glass now, there's there's a real risk that you're going to get like maybe 90 to 100 innings at at best out of him.
1: Baseball HQ's projection is 160 innings, but as you said, it's a very, it's a very dicey figure to throw out there for a pitcher like him who has had those injury issues. Uh, and in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher?
0: Again, based on price, and I, I just scratched my head at his, you know, ADP. Uh, Joe Musgrove on on now under the Padres. So Joe Musgrove is is a pitcher that you know when he when he's had when he has it going on when he looks good. Everything's working. He, he's been great, but he never seems to have it working for more than like four or five starts. And we're, it really seems like the community is going off of eight amazing starts last year. I, and I know he's made some changes, but I feel like we've heard this story with Joe Musgrove before. So I I wouldn't mind having him on my team at the right price. He certainly has some value, but I feel like people are really paying for the upside off of eight starts. And I think also banking on the fact that he's on a better team with better coaches it could work out. I mean, you know, pitchers are, there's a lot of variability and, you know, pitchers can, you know, certainly surprise us and take a step forward. I just don't want to pay for the upside on on Joe Musgrove or all the upside in, in the price that I see him going at now.
1: Mike Gianella's Baines, Beau Bichette, Alec Bohm, Tyler Glasnow, and Joe Musgrove. Uh, Mike, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Mike Gianella.
0: So you can find me at Mike Gianella, which is just my name, at Twitter, Twitter.com. Um, you can also find me at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, most of it is pay, it's subscription, uh, but it's definitely worth the price. It's about $4 a month. You get about 20 fantasy articles a week. Um, I know Baseball HQ is also subscription, so you know, this is a good message for these listeners. You know, If you, you like the coverage, you should pay for what you like you know, to keep good people you know, in, employed and, and working, doing you know, writing about what you love.
1: And people would be surprised how little we actually get out of it. So it's not like we're uh, we're all getting rich and uh, you know threatening Bill Gates. <laughs> that's true. I'm not.
0: <laughs> I'm not. I was going to say I'm not, not sitting in a palatial estate somewhere, you know, up in the hills. So that's that's a good point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Surrounded by your state of the art high speed internet connections and yeah, no, it's uh, it, most of us I can speak from personal experience and the guys I know at Baseball HQ and the guys I know elsewhere in the industry. We do it because we like it and the money's nice to to keep your wife off your back a a little bit, you know, out to dinner once in a while with the proceeds, but nobody's getting rich. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for doing this. I do appreciate it. I hope we get to talk to you again during the season and best of luck in Tote Wars.
0: Thanks a lot and thank you very much as always for having me on.
1: Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus and podcasts on their Flags Fly Forever show. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 15 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests on this Two tow Tuesday edition, Jeff Erickson from Roto-Wire and SiriusXM, XM, and Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Jeff is an impressive all-round fantasy baseball analyst and, as you heard, a terrific guest. And Mike is a very successful expert league player, a fine analyst and writer in his own right, and a great guy to talk with about baseball and otherwise. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a high rating. Helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition with National League and American League player news with Nick and Ray. An HQ Spotlight segment on one of our site's fine analysts, Rob Gordon's Minor League Minute, Alex Becky's frequent flyer, and of course, my extra innings comment. All coming up for you on Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and
0: edited by Patrick Davitt.